0: Hello, and thank you for joining me in the cozy confines of The Salon. This is Volume 13. I'm Derek Duncan, Architecture Editor at Golf Digest, and The Salon is where me and my co-host, the golf course builder Jim Urbina, as he likes to be called, have intimate conversations with different people from the world of design and beyond. It's been a little while since we lit the fire here, but as many parts of the country wind down their golf season and both Jim and I are spending more time in the office rather than on the road, we find we've got a little more time to delve into these talks. Today we're with Kyle Phillips, one of golf's premier talents, who spent the last 20-plus years designing courses all over the world, and even longer than that if you go back to his time with Robert Trent Jones Jr., who he started working with as an associate beginning in the early 1980s. Phillips' global resume is stunning and includes renowned courses like Kings Barn near St. Andrews and Yaz Links in Dubai. Domestically, he rebuilt the Golf Club of California, or Cal Club as it's known, and he recently completed Oaks Prague in the Czech Republic. We'll discuss many of these projects and others with him, and as you'll hear, if there's anyone as passionate about what they do in design as Jim Urbina is, it's Kyle. If you haven't yet, please be certain to subscribe to Feed the Ball via your preferred podcast provider, and if you enjoy the podcast, give it a star rating and a brief review while there to help promote the show. You can reach out to me on social platforms, including Twitter and Instagram, at Feed the Ball. And if you have a question that you'd like me or Jim to answer, send them there or to Derek underscore Duncan at Discovery.com. It's nice to be back in the salon with you. We'll get some initial thoughts from Jim Urbina and then get into our talk with Kyle Phillips.
1: You know, Derek, it's, it's been a long time since we've gathered our thoughts together, but Over this past spring, summer, and fall, I've had the wonderful opportunity to work with committee people, presidents of clubs, and owners. And I find it interesting, and I hope that I can talk, and you can talk, and we can talk to Kyle Phillips and and discuss that mentorship, that role that, that people bring to the site, to the golf course, to the committee, to the ownership. That gives you purpose and gives you reason and gives you a a, a path to create these wonderful golf architecture themes that we have. But if you don't mind, I'd like to go back to what A.W. Tillinghast said many, many years ago in his writings about Golden Age design and the people he had to deal with. So if you don't mind. Please go ahead. And I quote A.W. Tillinghast. No course can thrive under various experiments caused by the different opinions of a divided committee. The Green Committee must depend on the singleness of one man's purpose. His associates must assist, but in no sense oppose. And after the chairman's term has ended, his policies should be carried out by his successors. The surest way to ruin a golf course is by an ever-changing policy." End quote. And the reason I bring that up is that as we deal with architects, builders, as we deal with owners and greens committees and club presidents and all of the people that are involved with the golf courses we really love working on designing, we have to make sure that we find a purpose. We have to find an opinion that isn't divided, that we all have that same path to to create these, these wonderful designs so that we're not going in all these different directions. And I'm sure that you feel when you see a golf course and, and when you play a golf course that you could tell something's out of character. There's too many different ideas. Do you ever think that you can spot that, feel that, play that when, or look at that, and play it and see, wow, there seems like there's so many different ideas here. Have you ever
0: experienced that? Oh, yeah, certainly, especially at, you know, the clubs, type of clubs that you work with, not specifically, but older historic clubs that have a long lineage, you can often go see and uh, you can trace time back through the the abnormalities you might see through the golf course and the property. You know, there's a flower bed over here, uh, a bunker, a memorial bunker here, a grove of trees that seem out of place or they're the wrong species that don't match anything else on the golf course. Um, you know, somebody wanted a little pond in front of a green over here. <laughs> <laughs> the it old com- pond. That's right. You know, it's, and it's, I think what Tillinghast is, as anybody who works in golf architecture and remodels and redesigns has experienced, you're dealing with ego. And uh, chairman of committees and club members and presidents want to leave their mark somehow and instead of often just through their good work and stewardship and being uh, great to the membership and uh, helping the club financially and, and whatnot, they want to leave an impression or a memory of them their tenure on the golf course. And the only way to do it is to build something or to take something away, but it's often adding to the golf course and putting something into the design and onto the property that was never intended to be there. So I know a lot of what you do in your line of work is after enough time goes by, and uh, maybe that generation of Green Committee man or woman has passed, is going and erasing that and, and removing a lot of those artificial features that the architecture doesn't demand and the golf doesn't require. But it comes down to, don't you think it comes down to ego? and It's a natural instinct to want to leave your mark and to feel like you're making a difference, but Uh, It just often, very often, conflicts with the original architecture and the way the golf course plays, often, mostly, probably not in a positive way.
1: And not in a positive way. And to think that Tillinghast was dealing with this back in the 20s and 30s, and yet today we're still dealing with the same thing. And I appreciate the passion that, as you said, the Greens chairman, Greens chairwomen bring to the golf course they all want to see their golf course shine or they all want to experience the fullest extent of the design but when you go around a golf course and you see a pond that is inconsistent with a mckenzie design or a car path that crosses right in front of the line of play that Mm. has no 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 resemblance to any kind of architectural strategy. You think, who who thought of this? Why would you do that? It's so inconsistent. And so when I read that passage, I think that Tillinghast was trying to find that person who would keep keep the way, make sure they that it didn't become convoluted in its design. And one of the things I want to talk to our guest today, Kyle Phillips, about is the Cal Club. How did he find that right person, or how did that right person show up at the Cal Club that said, you know, this is what we're going to do and we're going to allow the architect to create this and we're going to reap the benefits of it. How did Kyle Phillips uh, happen upon the right person at the Cal Club or the right owner at King's Barnes, or how all their architects find those people that know what needs to be done to correct the the inaccuracies of their design or to make sure that the flow is consistent. And those are the people you try to find. Those are the people you try to assimilate with and and make sure that the ideas are true so that, as you said, the pond doesn't show up (laughs) in front of a part three that has no relevance.
0: What you're talking about right now brings up something that's very common. and It's this inherent tension between this urge from club members and people who play the golf course and, and even designers to want to always do something to the golf course versus the desire or maybe the, the the properness of letting it go and not doing anything. But there's always this, this momentum to try to tweak and change. And we, we just spoke that often that manifests itself in, in a lot of fluff and accoutrement that doesn't really belong or doesn't really work or add anything you're adding, but you're not adding value versus just letting it go and just maintaining the golf course and pruning it back. Cause golf courses always evolve. And it, it does come to what you just down to what you just said is who's making those decisions. Who is, uh, has the wisdom to push the buttons because at Cal club they, it was a pretty major reconstruction that the, that Kyle Phillips was hired to do. He's, he did the same thing at Hillcrest uh, in, in Los Angeles. There are times when the decision is we need to go into this club and we need to make major alterations to it for one reason or another, and there hopefully are mitigating factors. And in other places, we see the instinct to make a, a change or an alteration and it doesn't turn out that well. And and sometimes an architect's desire is to go in and, and make heavy-handed changes when it wasn't necessary. So there's this tension of how do you get it right? And really fundamentally, how do you know when to go into a property? And I, I use you in the universal sense. How does anyone know when major moves are required, especially to historic properties like Cal Club? I'm curious to get Kyle's perspective on and your perspective as well is like, how do you know when to go in and, and really start to fidget with a design?
1: And the, 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 the point being, how do you know who's to decide? Where do you start? How important is golf course history to you? What is important in this golden age design? If it has lineage is McDonald important to you is Maxwell Ross Tillinghouse styles and Van Cleek, whoever you're architect of record is? How important are they to the design? Was a highway put in? Were things changed in the surrounding uh, 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 peripheral that caused change to happen? Uh, trees uh, Trees dying or trees properly implanted. All of those things go into a decision and people just experience the aftermath of those decisions. Sometimes they're right and sometimes they're not. But I'll be curious to see, as we have both said previously, how did Kyle go about setting the standard for what he was going to do at the Cal Club? When I had visited that place several times while working at San Francisco Golf Club and Pasa I remember stopping in there and seeing, wow, this is not like any <laughs> golf course I remember of Ava McCann or McKenzie. Yet he righted that ship and he found that path. And uh, it's widely acclaimed. I've seen it. I really like what he's done. But how how did they get to that point? Who decided what was the path? How important the superintendent played into it? The shapers that were on board with it. All of those factors, Derek, that are rarely talked about, rarely talked about.
0: A lot goes into it, as you well know. You know when I think of and just before we bring Kyle on i this was on my mind when I think of of him and and the work that he's done over the last fifteen years or so two words come to mind really: one is the overall quality of the projects that that he's been involved in either domestically or internationally, and he's worked abroad you know as much as any other prominent architect has so much of his work that he's done is is overseas so i think that most of those projects are very are premium level they're not just um you know small time development resort projects they're, there's a lot of pedigree and and a lot of investment behind his projects so it's very high quality and yet at the same time the other thing that i think about it is how underrated he is I'm guilty of saying you know, there's, there are the big names in, in golf design right now, American golf design. And Kyle Phillips probably should be up in that first category based on the work that he's done, whether it's in remodels, restorations, or new work. And one thing I, I want to ask you this and maybe touch on it with Kyle because his work is so diverse, but I, I think of his work as I look at what he does and I call it naturalist. When I think of naturalism, and it's a word I use often, to define a lot of what's happened in architecture the last 20 years it has a natural n- nature look to it Wind blown scenes stolen from the landscape and yet a lot of construction is typically behind that if you think of king king's barns how much how manufactured that golf course was and i want to ask him and i want to ask you too jim when you hear the word minimalism what comes to mind? Is that an important word to you? Does that mean anything or define anything specific to you? I, I think it's different different than naturalism, but you know, you and, and and Tom Doak and Bill Coor and some others are are have always been termed minimalist. What does that word mean to you? Well, it's it's it's
1: a broad term, as as you know, people have used it in a broad sense, just like the term Links Golf. Well, we both know right. Lynx golf is one, is one dune in from the sea, but every American golf course is in the 70s and 80s was considered Lynx golf or, or uh, yeah. a, couple, uh, a couple mounds.
0: Yeah, anything a that didn't have any trees on it was, Link. <laughs> <laughs> was
1: Links. Was Lynx, was coined Lynx golf. So minimalism has kind of taken on that same broad sense that, oh, well, he, he didn't do anything. Uh, you know you could say the a public golf course in denver uh, city park where they didn 't do anything would be minimalism, minimalism, but in the true sense of the form it 's looking at a site maximizing its potential, using the topography, the natural green sites, the undulations to create a golf course like no other, and that 's applying the hand of man ever so slightly to a sight but but in minimalism the term that you didn't do anything uh is perceived to be sometimes a fallacy well what do you mean you didn't do anything you still sowed some seed and you still put in some sand in the bunkers you did a lot but in the true sense of the form pacific dunes is minimalism at its finest It's taking a piece of land on the Oregon coast and maximizing its potential. But as you know, the term minimalism gets spread out over an entire spectrum of golf design and it will become diluted just like the term Lynx Golf was diluted.
0: I think it begins to get diluted the minute that it begins to be held up as some sort of ideal. Like if you could build... A true minimalist golf course that that was inherently a better way to build a golf course, or the design of the end product was somehow fundamentally better than if you had to move things around and manufacture the golf course or parts of it. And I understand that instinct why, why that would be valued because it's it's organic and, and it plays to our, our our sense of romance. That you know, golf is natural. Going back to your concept of Lynx golf, you know, the found golf holes. Found items, and and there there is something sort of noble in that idea, but it's really became more of a contrast against the the rampant manufacturing and overshaping of of golf courses in the seventies, eighties, and nineties. Uh, you know, if you don't have the, all the ornamentation and all the going back to water hazards, you know, all of the things that architects and developers purposefully built in, like over seasoning the sauce if you didn't have that period minimalism wouldn't have the same attractiveness that it does now uh so so it was a reaction to something uh that was that needed a correction but then it minimalism in, in itself in a in a bubble became a catchword and an ideal and an identity that that uh i think golfers people who read magazines, maybe even architects, maybe even developers wanted to try to bottle that and capture it and, and say that everything was minimalist. Uh, and Sorry, I, I go back to your comment about how everything was termed links golf. And I think there is a, a strong comparison to minimalism, but Kyle Phillips will hopefully have something to say about that. His courses look minimalist to your point, but I, often there's, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, moving parts behind getting the golf course to look like that.
1: And you know, the true sense of a minimalist is a person who, who, like the Scots were, thrifty with the spending and the creation of the golf course. And there's nothing wrong with that, Derek. You know, we could spend a whole hour, hour and a half talking about minimalism and the creation of those features. There's nothing wrong with being thrifty with the with the dollar bill, with with not putting in a 4.5 miles of cart pass and not putting in fountains and waterfalls i love all of that but the term minimalism you still have to do something and there's people who have taken it to the next level and created golf courses that look like they've always been there i guess there's nothing wrong with that either
0: no i think i think that's a a very interesting thing about golf design is there's an audience for that right now more than there there has been in a long time so there's there's value in that uh, well, let's ask Kyle. Let's, in, in fact, let's let's bring him in now, Jim, and maybe we can start off talking about that and get his his uh, viewpoint on that. I guess the the alternative to that is if you if you are going to manufacture a golf course, if you have to, let's say your site dictates that you need to build golf. What's the value of making it look like it's a minimalist design? What's the value of making it look natural if it's not? And I don't have the answer to that. But Kyle, uh, a lot of his golf courses, you know, Kingsbarn, of course, the setting maybe maybe dictates that. But uh, we'll just kind of get his idea to start off with the delineation between minimalism and naturalism, and and find out you know his viewpoint on that and uh, what motivates his his aesthetic when he gets to that finishing point in a, in a project.
1: Agreed. Let's do it.
0: Okay. Here's Kyle Phillips, everyone.
2: Uh, my parents were from, you know, the Midwest from the, the Phillipses, where my grandfather grew up on a ranch in Kansas side. And my grandmother was on the Missouri side. That's where my, my parents met in the Kansas city, went to high school actually in, in Missouri and in Missouri. So my whole family Only when Missouri Tigers Missouri wanted to have this profession, I can remember um, talking to my dad about you know doing golf design business in in that era. Of course, you know how the the industry gym has shrunk today. You guys both know how it shrunk. In those days, it was never never grew. It was just very small, very small little cottage industry. And um, so, yeah, I mean, the whole plan was I was supposed to go to law school, right? And so I was already kind of (laughs) accepted into this pre-law law deal. And um, so it, that was one of the options. And it, the, the agreement was when this crazy idea didn't work out, then I would go do that track. And I think my dad always thought he should have probably, he was in the industrial film business. And so he, he, he had a certain, you know, creativity and, and certain you know, ability for that business that, that bode well for, for his career there, but always thought, you know, he could, he could do that other law business. But um, so when I was getting ready to come out of school, so I left, I, Missouri didn't have a landscape architecture program, right? Long story short, in Kansas State at that time, but won more national awards than all the other schools put together, I think they still won more in total. Um, and so I ventured out there and really it was probably the best decision I could have ever made as far as the education I got and not only design graphics, because everything was hand-drawn in those days, right? Mm-hmm. We didn't have any CAD or any of that stuff. And then all of the construction, all of the stuff you use every day, drainage, irrigation was really, really good. And you don't really you appreciate that when you go through it and you kind of know it's good. But until you try to get a job or until you actually show up in a company and you're seeing other people and the education they got in their landscape curriculum, a lot of them are missing the construction side of things. Right. And, um, you know, being able to have a great design concept. But then having the understanding of that next phase and actually applying it and being able to build it successfully, you know, I mean, it, it, it was super helpful. But regardless, I mean, so I'm so I'm back home for a weekend, and my dad says, "Okay, so what are you going to do when you graduate?" And I said, I'm going to go in the golf design business." And so, pregnant pause <laughs> says, "So what are you going to do when you graduate?" <laughs> you know, and it's cute. like nobody believed in, in that in that point that you know anybody there was such a thing as somebody really designing golf you know courses and all of that as you know i started out of school with jones jr i actually interviewed with dick phelps in in denver right and dick you know was great guy and um in on a i think a thursday and then i went out to california to do jones on a friday and spent the weekend and actually they offered me a job on friday and i said to the guy uh who ran Bobby's office at that time? I said, let, "Let me think about that for a little bit. Let me talk to my family." And they're like, "What, what are you thinking about?" I mean, we're like, because at that time, I mean, that that was. Yeah. A
0: don't you know choice. who we are?
2: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> exactly. don't exactly. Nobody says I mean? no to us. <laughs> exactly. No, I didn't say no to them, but it, you know, for you know, that was a big family transition, and and uh, you know, we had a close family, and so making that move. So I pulled the U-Haul. I mean, I'm telling you tons of background, but I mean, I pulled pulled the U-Haul out, you know, all the things you do. And uh, it was fun. It's It's been great. It's just been very, you know, Jim, I know you feel that way. I mean, anybody that's around golf, we're, we're all just so fortunate, so blessed to be doing what we do um, every day. I mean, you, you know, Derek, You're you're obviously a big, passionate golf. I mean, have you ever been engaged in design, Derek, at all? Or what's your
0: kind of... No, I'll, just a quick story. When I started college, I started in at the University of Colorado in the School of Landscape Design with the intention of becoming a golf course architect. That was their landscape architecture program. Yeah. I lasted yeah. a year before all the studio work kicked me out and the, the long nights and what what
2: ha- Yeah, I mean that that is the thing. I actually applied because in K State you had two years of general architecture and then yeah. you had a three year right. You kind of went through an interview thing and. I'll tell you, I've played for architecture as well, and I got accepted that. I almost went that route because the landscape architecture program there was notorious for just basically trying to get you to quit because of the intensity of the program, the nights. And, and you know, it was was tough. And I think that's probably, I mean, you know, how, how they... Or successful in a way, and they they, of, they weed you know, out the weak ones like me,
0: <laughs> send me back to my liberal arts corner.
2: Yeah, well, and I had a good friend who who you know went to landscape horticulture instead, and he runs a very successful you know landscape you know construction maintenance business. Um, but you know, I think even now he kind of wishes he would have hung in there, you know, and and gone ahead and done the landscape architecture thing. But anyway, yeah, it, it's fun. But you've obviously you know, it seems like you've carved out a good niche and you're in your sweet spot based on things. have, know.
0: Yeah. Worked out probably better than I could have planned. I didn't have a plan. And <laughs> I didn't have a plan either. So well, yeah. And I mean,
2: you know, you know what my wife and I, we, we say so many times, cause our kids like, you know, as they've grown up, there's so much out there, you know, so much distraction and all these, you know, things that we just didn't have to, to be distracted by. And you know, all their visions for, you know, what's going to happen. And I think worry more about all this future. And I said, look, you know, the best things that have happened to both, both of us have been things we didn't plan because I'm naturally a planner. I mm-hmm. love the plan, yeah. but um, the best things that happen, I mean, you know, were things that we, we just, you know, they, they just kind of worked out that way. And uh, so sometimes keeping our hand open and not trying to hang on to everything is, is the best way we can kind of move forward. You know,
1: would you have changed anything, Going would to landscape? Would you have changed anything going to landscape architecture class at Kansas State?
2: No, I mean you know I think in that was when I started. I mean, it, it's still probably now a lot of the guys that are really, I mean, you know, of course we could talk about that if you want because I know there's so many people when I started they were either civil engineer background or landscape architecture background. That's how they, or you know, you 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 had a you were a well, I mean, really in this country they were starting to be. You know, golfers Nicholas Palmer were the two, and and then more and more you know players um, that then hired people that were landscape architects or, or civil engineer type backgrounds to, to work on their you know on their staff. But um, yeah, and I mean, so things have evolved quite a bit. Um, you know, I think you know just generationally of, I mean, I know you're all into this about the styles of architecture that were done maybe in the '50s, '60s, and the you know, '70s. Pete die in the eighties who did this. And then you had Tom Doak, for example, came out of that dive thing and did just the opposite like children do. Right. I mean, you know, they do, the, they tend to, cause I mean, Dye moved a ton of dirt. Right. And he was doing links and challenging everybody in their thought process about what is architecture, but dope goes and does minimalist, <laughs> you know, I mean, complete opposite of what, you know, Papa does. And, um, so you know you look at these these chains of people's you know kind of family tree, if you will, and how they came through, and then where everybody you know goes and some people stay on the same you know line they 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 you know you've seen people inherit basically a firm when the when the guy either retires whoever the the, the name on the door was retires. They pick that up and they just continue on the same way. And other people do something very different. And then there's a whole generation like you, you, Jim, of guys who have come up really on the construction end, who are really now kind of going to design. So we have pros. I mean, first, it was just everybody was kind of a design background. Then Pete Dye made it where you, you really throw away your plans and you just get out there and work. The simultaneous to that, you know, he was working with Jack Nicholas before. So there's kind of three elements in in my view. I mean, you kind of have the the design background guys, you have the construction background guys, and you have the playing pro type guys, right? And did Jones –
1: was Jones, uh, when you went to California – it fit your
2: model are we, are we recording this at this point? or are we we're Absolutely. <laughs> we're recording. running,
0: yeah, this is too good. I'm glad I'm capturing oh, this is all this. <laughs> good,
2: I didn't even know we're doing okay. I'm, well, I'm you just, Kyle, you just
0: easy. surmised the last 50 years of golf course architecture in three right. beautiful, that's perfect exactly minutes right. This is <laughs> what we so spent weeks and weeks talking about.
1: And so that's what my next question was, Kyle, when you went to Jones Jr. in California, you were in the model of landscape architecture. Was that the perfect fit for you at that time?
2: Well, I mean, you know, yeah, I, I mean, and you don't know, Jim. I mean, when you start with a company, you, you kind of, you know, you do an interview just like you do an interview with a client, right? You kind of have to try to look at different things they say or just how, you know, they respond to certain things and try to kind of understand if it's just going to be a good fit or not. You know, you don't have a lot of time to do that. You may have a couple of days. I had a few days there and felt very comfortable with the staff, the team, the, you know, the kind of camaraderie they had. And, you know, they worked out, I think same house they're in in Palo Alto. It was just a house converted to an office. So it had a great, great vibe to it. And, you know, frankly, when I started in this, you know, Robert Trent Jones Sr. was really kind of the guy. I mean, in the sixties, he was the open doctor in seventies and he was still kind of this legendary figure. This was originally his West coast office, which Bobby had taken over and then, of course, Reese had set his own shop up down the street in Montclair for Mr. Jones. And so, you know, they, you know, they had a great reputation. And, you know, Mr. Jones was already, he was born in 06. So, I mean, yeah, he's he's getting to late 70s at that point. And um, so this was the younger kind of Jones, you know, more dynamic. And Bobby was on the state parks board and, you know, had more of an environmental, um, you know, kind of slant to, to the work he was doing. And so... You know it just seemed like kind of the perfect kind of opportunity for somebody who like we all need to do. we need to apprentice right when we get in, so yeah, yeah.
1: you know derek Pete was my my apprentice. Pete taught me how to build golf courses. Right. Uh, I believe Kyle, that Mr. Jones taught you how to design golf courses
2: well, he- I think the thing is is, yeah, yes, but also we had a construction company, okay. The Joneses for years had their own construction company. Mr. Jones still had one. We had one. And so we did on each project, and some of them we were general contractor when I was there. Um, Most of the time, really what we were doing, whether it was domestic or foreign, was doing uh, the the shaping. We had, you know, at least, I mean, minimum one, but usually at least a couple of guys there that were the lead shapers. It, and and uh, then we also did construction supervision. Got it. And um, so that was helpful because um, I think I came and, you know, again, you don't really know what you learn in school until you you see yourself in a broader context. But realizing that, that yeah, um, you know, I did come pretty well prepared to jump in and contribute early on. But also working with that construction branch because they would be very good when you, you know, they would be – they didn't mind letting you know when something you drew on a, on a paper didn't work. Right. I mean, you know, office boy, right. And and when you start an apprentice, basically you're starting as a glorified craftsman effectively. And, um, but you know, quickly as the industry grew, I had a chance to, to do more than that. And, uh, and I do think Jim, I mean, we have now come from an era of tons of golf housing developments where the norm was I mean, still really today, anything we do, you have to produce a lot of documentation to get approval. Even if it's not even if it's a beautiful site without a lot of earthwork, you know, really to be done, you know, and you just basically shape the site. It's really the shaping side, not the, the the greater land movement type site. Just all the all the hoops and the documentation you have to put together to get a permit. Um, so you still have to have that element, and then you get to the, the glory part of it is where you actually get to get on, you know, start the machines and get out and build the thing. Right. And so that front-end process is, is is always something that takes so long, as you know, to get in.
1: And, Derek, I would say the drawing part is the conceptual part is fun. But- but Kyle and I wish more people I wish more people got to hands hands T's Greens bunkers, scaled maps cuz that just gets you to what Kyle said the permit but the fun time starts in the creation.
2: Yeah, and I mean there's there's clearly I mean, you know, people I mean there's a lot of I mean, it's great to see the, the industry move to more of the artistic bit, right? Because for a while, it was very, that's kind of where I was starting with the residential side of things became very technical, it became a very, you know, almost more civil engineering. And look at some of these developments that have been built. I mean, you know, there is a lot of civil engineering that goes in because not from the golf standpoint, but the golf usually inherits all of the ills of the real estate development. So all the water from the real estate development often runs to the golf course because they want views <laughs> down into the golf course. The golf course ends up below the residential, not above it. And then of course, so you got all this drainage that you have to run through there. Plus, it's the golf course is mitigating every sin of the development, all the trees they cut, all the stuff they you know did yeah. to wetlands and other things. And so we're the ones that bear bore the burden. But now, I mean, I mean, kind of now the 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 kind of industry because the housing thing is just, I mean, it was overbuilt 10 years before it imploded, right? I mean, it was, everybody knew it was overbuilt, but they just kept going, you know, used to go to the Urban Land Institute and they would just say, you know, golf loses money. And so just forget about the golf and build the housing. And they were so successful at that. I went back a few years later and they were all crying over how they were losing 50 to a hundred thousand a month about how this was terrible. And I was like, you guys were successful. You did exactly what the urban land Institute recommended you do, which is just ignore golf, build the residential, you know, and then just sell the golf off or deal with it later. Well, you know, it was like the music stopped. Nobody could get rid of these golf courses. Everybody had wised up to the fact that the people that lived around them didn't want them. Nobody wanted them. And they were just kept losing money.
0: Kyle, going back to your, beginnings with with the jones family coming out of landscape architecture program at kansas state how much did you know about golf course design were, were you a hot shot that that came in and with the big ideas or because that was an era where there wasn't nearly as much information available mm-hmm. to a young person as there is now nowadays there yeah. are 21 year olds who think they many of them have traveled the world playing great golf courses right. they, they see it no, everywhere I mean,
2: I had not played overseas. I mean, I had really played. I grew up playing golf. I was never better than a two handicapper. I loved to play, but I wasn't a uh, guy who really aspired to play. Ironically, Dana Fry, who's in this industry through more of the construction end, was a guy that I knew back in Kansas City. He was a few years younger than I am, but not not by by many, but we played some junior golf together. And uh, he really aspired at that era to be a pro, and that's really what he did. But I was really probably more... Really loved design, and I, I really enjoyed construction and and that whole aspect. And so, that's probably why. But when I arrived there, I mean, I had been forced enough to win the ASLA has national student awards. I'd been forced enough to win one of those. I did actually probably in spite of the fact that my my senior project was a golf course you know, renovation in, in Springfield, Missouri, Horton Smith golf course, winner of the first masters, all that kind of stuff. But in those days that was a great opportunity to at least when you went to interview to have something in your portfolio that you could say, okay, here's, a, here's, you know, some things I've done, but yeah, you're right. I mean, when you start out, you really have to learn from those around you. I was fortunate to have a good team of people that, you know, this is kind of how our setbacks are between holes. I mean, I kind of knew that there were books written already at that time that talked about all those kinds of things. But early on, I think what became apparent was my ability to visualize 3D off of a piece of paper. We had competitions between other architects and the senior guys were, you know, really leading that charge to get those projects. And then we ran into one in Geneva that was particularly um, difficult and difficult site And uh, in Europe, you know, was 10% of budget of what we were building courses for in Asia in those days. And um, so everybody was frustrated with it. We had Nicholas Palmer and ourselves were invited to do this, this competition. And so it ended up on my desk. I came up with the routing that worked. Everybody was kept scratching their head going, how does this work? But it worked. We submitted that plan. We got the job and I kind of became the guy that, when we got a fussy project or a difficult project, they'd go like, okay, they actually started calling me Mr. Alternative. We'll have Mr. Alternative do this. And um, that's how I got involved in Granite Bay, Jim. You were asking that question early on because it was a kind of a difficult little site. It is. And it uh, is. originally that had been a much bigger piece of property. And then it it was going to be a golf residential and then it got shrunk down to what it was and all the residential under the tunnel across the street that in this piece of land was what owned and they tried to put some h- holes anyway. So that the, that's really how I became the guy that took that site. We had three other projects in the same area, Serrano, Winchester, and the Ridge, and each of the other architects took those. And I ended up with that one. But um that said, that's how I ended up in Europe really was that first experience in Geneva and getting that job. And then of course, lower budgets, And um, that really changed my life looking back because that got me to Europe. That got me really playing a lot of the traditional courses, Heathland courses, links courses, and really enlightened me as to why we celebrated what we now call the golden age courses, which were all designed by who, by British Isle architects. Yep. Wherever they came from, right. They grew up and they had this, I mean, it's amazing how your mind just, you know, you start playing links courses and you just go, wow, yeah. it, it's its incredible how it expands your imagination and how those are just built on the land. And they're built in the land and on the land. And uh, so that's what really kind of transformed my whole mindset and, and, and kind of made me try to be able, because we were building, as you know, Jim, we went from a period when people when you talk about designing courses, you designed tees, you designed greens, and you designed bunkers, If the land was hilly, it was hilly, and if it was flat, it was flat and then you and Pete died you you're, you know in that generation, you started moving dirt from corner to corner
1: <laughs> no stone left unturned
2: exactly and and so you know, and we all know now like okay, it was pretty unnatural, you know it was cool, it was kind of fun. But if if there was ever a moment, I mean, that was definitely the bigger is better era. Yeah.
1: And Derek, I, as I told you many times, I could move a million cubic yards in my sleep because it just became the norm. And as Kyle said, when I got sent to Scotland by the Dye family and I saw Western Gales and Troon and I shook my head and I said, what the hell are we doing Back here in the United States, why aren't we building more golf courses like that? So I understand Kyle's enlightenment when he went to Europe, work in Europe, and he yeah. started to see all of that.
0: Well, then let me ask you both uh, start with you, Kyle. You came up in this period of design, and this, your background was with the Jones family and designing through the 80s and 90s. What what took so long for golf to embrace these traditional forms, the the links spirit that you described, that you got immediately when you went to Scotland and Britain and played those kind of golf courses? Why has it only been in the last ten, fifteen years or so when we see these, this style style of golf expressed in its all of its grandeur? Why did it take so long to get from there to where we are now?
2: Oh, that's a good question. You know, uh, I think you know the majority of people. I mean, a lot of the architects, I, I didn't, I mean, Mr. Jones traveled a lot, obviously. He, he got around, but a lot of the architects, you know, that designed in this country at that time were really their point of reference was U.S. courses. We were doing a lot of residential courses, but it's a good question. Why, why did it take so long? Um, at the period, I think though, Jim, I mean, you, you were in this, I mean, the mindset to me was that we were advancing golf and that, you know, we were really doing great things in golf. I don't think anybody... You know, it's kind of like you don't know what you don't know, and um, I, I think that you know. It, but but looking back, what were what were we celebrating? It really was an architecture. I mean, you know, if you looked at how people were advertising it, they were like they had the state of the art irrigation system, whatever that meant, right? And drainage system, and it was championship. You know, long, 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 long. That was important. Still is to some people. That's all they talk about. You know, good cocktail. Party talk, you know that kind of level of, of conversation. Oh gosh! And the best thing that people can talk about is they had full length cart pass. <laughs> wasn't that? A, wasn't that really? Could you imagine great courses like Cypress Point, advertising that they yeah. had? Now they've upgraded to full length cart pass. What, is,
0: what an ultimate luxury that is! It it's is a sign of wealth and prestige. I mean, when we got to Cow
2: Club Jim, when they had full length cart park, park paths that literally ran through the old Mackenzie bunkers. I they remember took out a lot of the old McKinsey bunkers so they could get them. And you see the ghosts, you know, the, the, yes. ghosts, the bunkers. It I was, it was I mean, it was, it was, it was like one of those, you say is hysterical is funny, but it was sad. It was just realizing how architecture had just been dismissed and really agronomy was just so above architecture at that point. Um, how fast really, were the greens? How fast were the greens? You yes. mean that, that
1: was the, that was your that was the that mindset? Was your, yes. How fast yeah, can we get mindset. the greens? Yeah.
2: Well, and I think and I think green speeds though. Have, yeah, have really that that was something maybe not as much when I first started. I mean, tempo was a good California course. Or when I first played it, I mean, those Mackenzie greens were awesome, and they were quick. But, you know, they had the thing where they, instead of putting a speed limit, and that's a conversation you guys have, um, probably have had with people, but that's another day. But this whole, there's so many different threads within the industry. And one of them is just greens. I mean, I, I come from the feeling of like, if I've got some beautiful Mackenzie greens, just put a speed limit on it and enjoy the greens. Don't dumb them all down so I can say I have 12 on the stint meter. Right. Agreed. But I mean, you know, that's a battle every, every club club faces, but um, you know, that has become, as you said, that has become now the two things are this first, it was the, the, used to be, everybody cared about the green surfaces and the condition of the greens and the speed of the greens. Now the other phenomena is bunkers. I think people talk more about the condition of their they're, they're bloody hazards, right?
1: Yeah.
2: I mean, yeah. And, they're, and they're concerned about the condition of the bunkers, but, um, anyway, yeah, no, it's been a very interesting transition to see. The industry, the ebbs and flows within the industry.
1: And Derek, if I could if I can ask Kyle this. Yeah. Yeah. He went to Europe, he went to Asia, but he comes back to California and goes to the California Club, the Cal Club, and just knocks it out of the park with the style and presentation of the original A.V. McCann, now Mackenzie and Hunter design. And people go, Wow, this is really, really cool. Mm-hmm. And I say to you, Kyle, you must have had a a point in your life when you were building, designing, building, restoring that golf course, reimagining it, that you thought, man, I did I could have done this twenty years ago. But why today? Why was this okay to do now?
2: Yeah, um, you know, and and uh, you know, because cause I knew the California Club. I mean it was a people knew about it, but very few people played it. I mean, before we got there, Jim, they had taken out a lot of trees. And I mean, partly was to let light in and, you know, the trees had just, you know, the the cypress trees, there just pop up out of the ground. Even after we've redone it, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you've got cypress trees just naturally coming up, but they had pine and cypress. The other thing that's probably helped in that front is of course, you know, for better or worse, there's been a, disease you know with with the pine trees out here so they were kind of focusing mainland and taking the pine trees out so that helped so the members were already conditioned to that but um you know they do you, do you know the history of that jim about how the, the san bruno creek got filled yep. in i don't yep. know eric if you know that but san bruno creek ran along the north side of that property and there's some residential up on the hill that used to look over the creek to the golf course and they caltrans came in in the 60s and they plowed through a four-lane connector between an interstate and uh, 280 and El Camino down there and um, so the whole well what would have been the first five holes of the golf course were severely compromised and so yep. when I first played it it was um, kind of a mix jump senior to come in and done that work but it was really the, the brief clearly was to leave everything where it was but compress it and uh, they did change the root of the course uh, I mean the the par of some of the holes to kind of get everything fit in there but it was like a whole different type of golf course when you stepped onto the 6th tee.
1: They were very inconsistent
2: course plays up the valley. Yep. And uh, so you know we came there they had already decided they were going to redo the greens. Uh, they had nematodes and they, they you know irrigation system. So when you start talking about redoing greens and irrigation system, it's like it's time to just take the full step back and say okay, let's just say you know what we did in the 60s we'll just say, let's say we get a do-over. This is our time to kind of stand back and say, if we were going to do it again, what might we have done differently? Because it was clearly two different golf courses. And uh, so that kind of opened up the thought of, of uh, using some land that they had not used before that. I think, you know, when the members looked at it, they couldn't imagine how that land would be used. And that's where that Cape hole kind of right there. And, um, and there was a lot of pushback. I mean, people said there's not a hole like that at Cow club, you know, the people that were kind of the naysayers and um, you know, it's turned out to be one of the, which, you know, from your, our standpoint, you know, Jim, when you, you go on on the limb and you tell people they're going to love this hole, you know, <laughs> you just pray they're going to love the hole. But you know, what really drives that is, you know, Jim, is it really, at the end of the day, it's going to be the guests that the members bring that are going to tell them, how good it really is yeah. because I think when you are a member, sometimes you're so close to it, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's like your children. I mean, you're so close to them. It's hard to get an accurate read. It's people on the outside, especially, you know, uh, when you do something well like that and you make such a transformation, the connoisseurs of golf, you know, come, they want to see it and then they tell the members like, wow, this isn't just good. This is really an amazing, I mean, kind of combination Reimagination, restoration it was i mean i remember brad klein saying i really don't know how you describe this because it's you've built new holes you've totally restored the old holes you know that, that we could there was 13 old holes restored 12 of them uh one of them that i didn't restore was replaced with that cape hole
1: yep yep
2: and then the par three that plays down but anyway so what, then in that process is even on that front nine when you play the front nine going back and looking at the old pictures and to the extent possible, bringing back the essence of the old courts, trying to think about the strategy. And uh, when you get up into the corner, if you guys, I don't know if you remember all the holes, how, how well you remember them, but um, you know, what, what's now the kind of fourth green, you know, one down, two, yep. three, four back in the corner. Yep. That was number five green.
1: That was very dark down there. <laughs> it was very dark down there
2: before <laughs> we started. Right. I mean, it was a, And what was phenomenal was we found some old pictures before all that was built. And from that green site, of course, the hillside was all open without the freeway and that land dropped way down into a ravine. And now you have, you know, you don't see it. It's not as obvious as you think, but there's enough tree cover, but the roads now probably 20 feet above you. And it was at least probably the ravine was at least probably 20, 30 feet below you. So that's how much they've changed that land. But that green we saw a picture, this was A.V. McCann, because that was his green, and McKenzie just did the rebunkering in the 20s, right? So the whole layout at Cal Club was originally A.V. McCann, and then McKenzie came and rebunkered. But what, what we didn't have was the picture that was found mid construction where that green actually had the goal wings that we have on both sides. Yep. That was A.V. McCann. And then in the 30s, we think that that disappeared. Quickly, Because even when you saw the McKinsey bunker there, you didn't pick up those goal wings. So McKinsey, the, the way that hole is bunkered was really all A.B. McCann's concept within the McKinsey style of bunkering applied. And, of course, all the fairway bunkers were McKinsey because in those days, in the way it was built, only greens had bunkers. So,
1: But I can tell you it's now consistent, Derek. It's consistent throughout the golf course. And Thanks, that's man. what it was lacking. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Yeah, thanks, Jim. I really appreciate that. Because I mean, the members were like, you can never make the front nine as good as the back nine. And people that have never seen it before, a lot of them, their favorite holes are somewhere on the front nine, you know, which I really appreciate. Because that's, that's what's hard, the idea that when you go into these things, that it can be seamless at the end. And even going up that valley up when you go up to four, that green. That yep. was so tight in there before construction. You sound like you knew the golf course. Before. I knew it very well. I was working at San Francisco
1: golf club and I would go down there a lot on the way right. back to the airport.
2: Exactly. And, and so, you know, how tight that was. So I took the whole hill and just mimic those landforms and set that, you know, pulled that out. We use that material to, to help us other places. But so when you play it, it, you know, if you took a picture of the hillside before and after you wouldn't know it. Right. And I think those are the things that, you know, we do really well is to be able to go in and disguise those. And, you know, of course, in the 80s, nobody disguised anything. They just cut it. <laughs> right. You know. And, and so, I mean, we literally had members saying, wow, you dug down the right side of that hole and recreated the, the low that was over there, kind of a remnant of the old San Bruno Creek on the right side, which was not what we did. But see, that, that's all that matters is how people perceive your work. I mean, you can love your work, Jim. I can love my work. You know, Derek, you can write some great article and people, you know, you may love it, but you hang it on the wall and everybody tells you what they, they think and what they see. And, and that's really the biggest sometimes teacher for us is how people respond to, you know, things that we try, experiment with, do, and uh, how, how positive or, or sometimes not so positive, <laughs> you know, because you're always trying to push the edge. And at Cal Club is no exception. I mean, trying to get those greens, You know, we we had some pictures of the McKinsey greens, people standing on them and replicate those and others you know, had been changed several times. So then at that point, you know, you're just trying to 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 build greens that look like they belong in that context of that architecture. And same with the the bunkers. We had some aerials. So to be able to make those really. And now the members actually see the old pictures of the McKinsey bunkers and go, wow, you know, Ron Witten, actually, you know, Ron quite well. I do. He actually said to me, he goes, they're more McKinsey than McKinsey. And I mean, that's <laughs> to me, you know, when you're doing that, he's, he's the, you know, the, the great Alistair McKinsey and amazing bunker styles and concepts and so forth. But I think that's a, you know, tribute to just the whole team that worked there on this because, you know, we had Josh Smith there and you guys know Kyle friends and, and so forth George and, waters, and George waters. Yep. And, that's a hell and, of
1: a team you put together.
2: Well, and you know what, in, in, you know the, those guys were were you know they were all into it and yep. you know it's a pleasure when you come on site of course we're within a stone's throw so you know you would be there mark dolly who works with me he's been with me forever everybody was there they were putting pegs and grounds trying to get right where the photograph was we had the photograph right there and as we shaped we were trying to then on the new holes of course here we go you know and uh you know, so we 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 had a lot of fun, and um, you know that's that's as you know, I mean, a lot of the hard work is done before you know we start construction, and when we get to construction is when it, it's it's the best best time ever.
1: Kyle, uh, D- Derek, can you see the passion in Kyle's <laughs> voice when he's talking about the Cow Club? You know, Jim, I
2: you know I yeah, you know what's great about Cal Club to me, if I had to say there was the thing, yes, I mean we we've been fortunate enough in. in to have some success and get courses in the top 100. But, you you know, um, some of your students, you know, you you can maybe take them from C students and make them A students, but that doesn't mean they're still going to be rocket scientists. Right. Um, But, but you can make it. And so for us, it's really to try to be, Really, you know, how, how much horsepower can we get out of that place? You know, and, and how can we really transform it and, and make it the best it can be? Because look every site's different. I mean, not every site's on the ocean, not every site's as stunning and beautiful or has the best location. But with the Cow Club, to me, was the transformation as much of the golf course as great as that was of the club, because that club was always welcoming. It was always friendly. It was always it, it, there was not a it wasn't a pretentious kind of club, right? Um, it, they maintain that their membership has changed dramatically. I mean, they have national members and a lot of people that maybe used to join Olympic club are now joining cow club because there's no tea times. It's more walking. Um, you know, there's, the, the, but so the guys that were the players in the Bay area, right. Would generally go, go, go try to down Olympic. And now a lot of them are coming their way. Uh, and then the national membership side. So the way that club is still maintained is kind of down home, you know very friendly uh relaxed kind of atmosphere and um it's really become so european feeling to me i mean very you know when i showed up the first time on that i remember first thing i saw five guys playing golf together each on their own golf cart just driving everywhere you know (laughs) and now you know we're what what have we been doing this last year we're taking out more paths I mean, the walking is – I mean, really the only paths we have left are just so maintenance can move around the golf course. Mm-hmm. And it's fantastic to see the transformation of, of, of that place as a club. You, you must know, have had well.
1: some hell of a leadership there.
2: Well, you know, we, we did. We had uh, – and, and this is a, a side when you get into these renovations is it really internally with the club. There was a guy – I mean, you, you may have interviewed him, Al Jameson, and uh, he, another another younger guy, um, John McGovern, who came on and, and probably, I mean, look, every, everybody that was in that committee was instrumental, but those were guys that really stick out as people that were part of that process from beginning to end. And John's been club champion several times, but um, yeah, the leadership within a club makes all the difference in the world. You know, you can have great ideas. I have great ideas. They may even have all the budget But uh, their ability to really work side by side and and advise us as designers about, you know, we have to do presentations and listen to advice. I mean, as you know, as you move through this process and you're trying to present, one of the things I learned early on is you have to get the ex-presidents involved. You have to get the the old leadership guard involved, green chairman and so forth, and bring them along with the committee. Because if you go up there and bring your presentation forward and all those people aren't involved not just the committee but all the old leadership and you don't have that group nobody's listened to anything you're saying i mean they're just they're switched off and they're upset because they're not included and they feel automatically that the work that they may have done is now being dismissed and so uh, al did a great job in bringing people on board there was a lot of you know in this case a lot of meetings and small groups and things like that to bring people along and um You know, and even when we, you know, I tend to get involved in everything from gate to gate, right? There were some fountains and things that were built and things that were done that were like 70s type of things. that just didn't fit in that context, you know, taking the lakes out that they spent lots of money on (laughs) at one point. And um, just their trust and belief that, you know, um, that we knew what we were doing. And um, that it was going to be really far better, but I mean, I think to everyone, it, it's it's come so far, not only on the golf front, but on the club front. But anyway, yeah, a lot of passion on that one. Still fun to have it in our backyard and be able to go down and enjoy it.
0: Speaking of of leadership, you just spoke about how important it is to get various levels of of committee members, retired committee members, everybody on board. That's that's it's got to be in place. I know that for a project to turn out as best it could another type of leadership comes from somebody like mark parsonen who you had a, lo- mm-hmm. a very very good relationship with on a number of p- projects that's really fundamental to the mm-hmm. outcome of a new project as well right to the to the style of golf that we've seen developed in the last 20 to 25 years getting away breaking away from that from those types of courses that we saw in the 70s 80s and 90s the overbuilt mm-hmm. courses when when right. as you said sort of being more more Paying more attention to agronomy and other things than the actual architecture, but you need somebody like a Mark Parsonen to take the reins. I think we've seen the most successful courses in the last two decades have always had strong leadership at the top who put golf yeah. first rather than other considerations.
2: Yeah, and, I mean, you know, and there's a good example. Like your ownership profiles are so different, you know, from course to course, Jim. I mean, you, you know that, right? I mean, you have owners that may be golfers. Right. And and they may be passionate and they may be building a project because they love golf, but everyone is kind of different. And, and I mean, most of the folks we design, I mean, I really enjoy when there is a real clear owner of a project who is engaged in golf, because I always feel like that. You you know, Jim. You know this well. I mean, regardless of, let's say, you choose a, a Toro system or a Rainburn system, and I always try to get the superintendent on board. You know, before that decision has to be made, and sometimes, you know, you can keep saying it, but it doesn't happen. But to make sure the owner understands, those basic decisions are both, you know, could be great systems. But sure enough, whatever one is chosen at that moment. This next superintendent could come in or one of his buddies asked him, well, why did you choose that? You should have chose chose the other. And so trying to keep and that's a technical side of things. But even on the architecture, the style of bunkers, we do everything because, you know, I take an approach on each course of, OK, this is like a new book. This is a new story. This isn't you're hiring me to, you know, crank out, copy, paste a style. And this was part of the reason I know Derek kind of mentioned about talking about, you know, how I left Jones or why it was really to, to take these things that I saw within architecture and even links architecture, which is very different styles and apply those appropriately to the landscape we're given to the climate we're given and so forth. So that when we deliver this, it looks like it belongs in that, in that environment, but also it is something that the owner is really proud of. And so when he raises his glass to toast the celebration of this launch of this new course in his mind, he knows what has been created and he embraces it because he, you know, we give birth, but they have to raise it. Right. And, you know, um, Mark was, you know, I mean, it was really sad. Jim, we talked about this a little bit um, before today uh, just, you know, to see him pass Uh the way he did because he was so full of energy and had a, real strong background in marketing. And he was one of the few guys when we came into the Jones office, there's only one other guy that I remember came in and really interviewed the whole team of architects. And he kind of selected who he wanted to work with, you know, and said to Bobby, like, okay, I, I, you know, can I work with this guy? And I don't, you know, I don't know what I said or did or whatever that, but anyway, he did that. And, um, but then, you know, uh, he took a project course and uh, his name was George was his first name. And he had a buddy named Louie. And so we had George's Lake and Louie's Lake. And a lot of those things were already uh, in place or been architects that had done layouts and so forth. So anyway, so I, when, when I engaged, you know, from the Jones side with that, we put the entire golf course on the one side of the road and then the houses on the other side of the road. And uh, you know, got that approved really pretty easily because I did another plan, which showed what they could do with the zoning and just with the whole thing is lots spread out versus taking the density they were allowed and putting a golf course and then a higher density residential development across the street. So that went through pretty well, but Mark was a, definitely his marketing background. I mean, he had done beer and he had done, you know, in Silicon Valley, you know, startup companies and marketed things. And, you know, he came up there and, um, you know, they, had three girls and they were kind of raising their families um, at, at that point and uh, was just, you know, full, as you know, full of life, full of energy and uh, want to do something great. And, um, you know, and he's, he's constantly, you know, people that we work with obviously have a lot of money and so they're very successful at some some level. And we've had people that ran businesses and did that, but he really was Always thinking about how are we going to sell this? How are we going to market this? What's our story? And um, was and uh, you know I can remember giving him McKinsey books and cult books and you know doing these kind of things, and he just was so excited about. It. And I think it really re inspired him and really gave him new life. Really, you know, kind of I think he was at a point where the marketing thing, you know, that was who he was. That's what he loved doing. But I think through golf, he, he was kind of given new energy and new life. So that was fun. We had, you know, it was a great time to do the Granite Bay thing. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think he was very good at getting all the people around the table and listening to, to people, you know. And, uh, and I think probably that's what he did with marketing, right? He got everybody around to talk about the product, to talk about what it was. So that was really unique i had not seen and worked with anybody as a client, and even to this day, I mean, he's he's clearly a one-off. I mean, even around here, the people that still know him is is uh, he had a couple partners. He had a primary money partner, and then a guy who really knew development here. And so, you know, every everybody, you know, he always puts a smile on your face when you talk about you know him and his level of energy and his contribution and you know, I, I, it's, it, the club, to be honest with you, Jim has become a bit more commercial, you know, they've, they've got more carts and what the whole walking experience and the original vision is, is shifted a bit and, and become a bit more that way. Uh, we'll, we'll see, you know, sometimes time changes and, and things come full circle. So we'll see, but the bones of the place is still great. And, uh, and then, you know, it's it probably, you know, Derek, you, you, well, Jim, you guys both know from Kings barns and, um, that was a, a project that got me launched. I know that was one of your things that you were kind of wanting to talk about today. And I, I'm really talking about putting a smile on my face. That's a, that was so much fun. I mean, to, to when I first went to Scotland the first time, I played Turnberry and Horizontal Rain. I mean, I kid you not, it never touched the top of this head. It was just like this. Right. And because I thought I'd never go back again. And then you know I came back and came back, and then of course to do Kings Barnes, uh, the way that worked out. I mean, I'd gone over there looked at that site when it was owned by another group, thinking that they were ready to hire an architect. This was back when I worked with Bobby, and then um, there'd been they were like the second owners, and they were looking to sell it again. They weren't looking for an architect; they had a plan. They were looking, you know, for for somebody to do do the project. So. Uh, you know, then Granite Bay was over and Mark was looking for something to do and uh, was, you know, looking at this site and that site. And I just said, well, would you ever, you know, think about doing something over here? I mean, there's a site. They're looking for an owner. Um, I thought his first partner at Granite Bay at the time I thought would be up for doing it. He turned out not to be. And then I was able to connect him with his, you know, Art Dunkley, who owns Kings Barns now. Um, and, you know, just sometimes in projects, people spend 20 years to put stuff together. And this thing just came together like this. And then all of the people that were involved in the, in the project, people I'd worked with and Southern Golf was the contractor and a lot of the shapers that actually were Southern Golf guys that we had, had working for us when I was with Jones that I knew. So to be able to kind of pull that group together, I've still got a guy that, that cut his teeth there, David Smith, who's worked with me now, you know, since then on, Tons of projects did. In fact, he's been involved in both, you know, Yas Links, which is one of our top 100 um, out in, in South Cape and in, in Korea uh, down in, in fact, he, he just left uh, Verdura where we're working in Sicily, but um, you know, he, he's done so much good work with us. And um, so, yeah, I mean, this is a, what, what a great time to work in the shadows of St. Andrews and, and and do that and the energy you know, that Mark brought to the table to to pull all that together and to package it and market it and then to, you know, to get the RNA involved uh, in it to, um, you know, really back it and endorse it. And as it turned out, we didn't even need that. I mean, we opened it uh, at 2000 during the U.S. or the, the Open Championship. And uh, you're talking about a make or break moment. You know, you, you literally you opened the, world the doors.
0: Eyes of golf <laughs> on you. <laughs> Exactly. Tiger Woods, you know,
2: it was, it was, yeah. Well, and then, and then all of the Derek Duncans of the world, right. All, all, all of the, the connoisseurs. Right. Everybody's you know, there. They, they're there. And, you know, of course, you know, none of us forgot we were Americans, right. I mean, you know, Art Hart had done some work over in the UK and that's what, you know, made him comfortable. I think probably of doing it. He was familiar with the United Kingdom and working over there. Mark had gone to school over there a little bit. I mean, so he kind of knew that. And of course, I'd worked in Europe for already, I don't know, 15 years or something at that point. So we were, you know, uh, but we were still Americans, you know. And so, you know, here we are, all the British and having the RNA and and all of that, because the RNA wanted tea times is what they wanted. They saw what we were building. They saw the quality. There'd been another course built down the road, uh, and then there'd been another one done in town. Uh, not long before we built this, and they could see the difference, and um, they trusted, you know, that that it was going to be good, because most people don't realize that the old course at St Andrews is a public golf course, and that clubhouse we see and that revered club owns that building, full stop. Yeah. So when you join the old course at St Andrews, if you're lucky enough to join the old, you know, I mean the the Royal and Ancient Golf Club you're not joining the old course at St. Andrews. You're joining a building and Mm -hmm. all along Main Street in Scotland, right? On the right-hand side are multiple clubs that have rights to play the same course. And uh, that's another story for another time. But I think that, I don't know what all you guys have covered, but I mean, that could be kind of interesting because the the idea of public golf and how the origins of golf, a lot of people perceive golf started as a very closed you know, rich man's game. And it, nothing could be farther than the truth. It was really bucolic. It was very public. You had clubs of people that were, let's say if you, you know, you were all okay. Maybe the doctors and lawyers had their own club, but also the guys that were, were the blue collar workers in town had their club and they played competitions on on the same golf course. And so that's that's a, another thing, but... Um, yeah, we you know, spent a lot of time our,
0: actually talking about that. The, there's a lot of energy now, I think, amongst younger generation of players who kind of want to get back to that Scottish ideal of public golf and uh, a low barrier of entry and just really focus on the the experience of, of playing. And Jim and I talk about it on this podcast. But going back to Kingsbarn for a minute, Jim and I were also talking about sort of this concept a little while ago of between these, these kind of uh, code words... Um, marketing words, maybe now like minimalism versus naturalism. And it makes me think of Kings barn, which is a golf course that was created. It didn't look like that at all when you first saw it. And now if you just drop somebody there, they couldn't tell, they would think that it was a natural links course. You know, they, they would interpret it as something that was a quote unquote minimalist design. I would love to get your thoughts on that, and also I imagine it must give you incredible pleasure, and maybe more pleasure to take a, a zero property and turn it into a, a top one hundred golf course in the world right. than than to take right. a, a golf course that's a already an eight, a property that's already an eight, and turn it into mm-hmm. a nine or something along mm-hmm. those lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be able to create that type of golf that gets that amount of respect and looks so authentic must h- provide extra satisfaction, I would imagine.
2: It it does. And you know, Kings Barnes came along at the right time. You know, Jim, if I had done that ten years before, I don't think I would have been prepared for it. But you know, <laughs> having spent the time no, because you learn and you grow, right? Yep, and and right. uh I, I think even since Kings Barnes, I mean, you know, it's hard to believe this was our gonna be our big 20-year celebration. And of course, sadly Mark passed last year and, and then of course COVID hit this year, and so maybe we'll have twenty-five or Maybe we'll do 22 and 22, you know, because the open's going back in 22. Maybe we'll do something like that. But regardless, at that point, you know, I'd already been when I when I started my my firm was 16 years in, in, the, in the business. So we had a chance. I was, you know, even more advanced by the time we, we did King's Farms. But the um, you know, that desire that I had to try to say, OK, why can't we? not just discount and dismiss the technology we have, the the earth moving abilities, all these abilities we have to do the best agronomic standards we've ever known in golf. But why can't we do the best architecture in golf and be able to take what Pete Dye started and perfected, if you will, to make it look and feel not like I moved a lot of dirt, but that folks like Derek show up, right, Jim, and say, to us, which is Derek, that's the best compliment we can get. I can remember Reese Jones sending me a nice note saying, wow, where did you find such a great site? (laughs) How did you find such a great site? That is exactly, I want people to think this was easy. You know, there was nothing happened here, folks, nothing to see, you know, this was, we just built it into the ground, onto the ground. It was all there. And so, you know, and, uh, but Derek, yeah, that was uh, really, uh, at the right point to be able to do that. And then I think, you know, how we've advanced that, uh, you know, I mean, probably the most extreme examples we have of our top 100 courses. Kingsbarns was a big deal, but Yas Links in Abu Dhabi was sand about a meter and a half, five feet off the sea level, right? Flat. Things were dredged to, to create the shoreline and define it. And how that is done, pe- nobody would believe it. I mean, I had... We, we actually get kind of a horror, kind of a fog that will come over there at certain times of the year. And I had a guy out walking around out there and you really couldn't see, but maybe just right in the hole in front of you. And literally he goes, if I didn't know where I was, I would just think I'm walking in Scotland, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so that's to us as the people creating this, it's really you who aren't engaged in the industry in the same way. That's what we love to hear. But then on the other side of that, so there, there's where you had to create the noise. There, were no, there was nothing there. I mean, King's Barnes was at least a couple of levels and, and a few, you know, the, kind of the old sea cliff and the new sea cliff. But in, in South Cape and South Korea was to turn down the volume. Right. So I came in there and dropped the earth moving. They had made a few changes to their master plan and, um, you know, has created a, a really wonderful seaside, you know, along the cliffs and along the coast of, of southern South Korea. So in both cases, to really be able to, to, to drop in in totally different kinds of situations, different grassing, and still apply a lot of these links principles to the golf course in very different locations, very different looks, very different feels, different styles, um, you know, is, is really – and for better or for worse, I mean, that's kind of what has been our, our, our forte is being able to not just, you know, come up with a good rooting – but also come up with a really good set of bid documents that people can bid in. and know, even if, you know, people have, you know, deep pockets, they still want fair pricing. They still want to, to stay on whatever budget looks like. And that always is dependent on the site they've chosen, you know, is it sand, is it rock? And, and so I think we do that very well, but then when we get to construction, we're not just, you know, they're, they're, I can remember Ted Robinson did a beautiful job, probably the best job of anybody in the seventies and eighties and just handing developers a plan and they built the golf course. And that was it. Just hand them a plan. We're definitely the opposite of that. I mean, we're trying to make the best decisions we can at the rooting stage so that we have that foundation laid. Cause as you know, Jim, if the rooting's bad, you can shape and shape and shape and it's never <laughs> going to be great. Right. So you got to have that foundation, but at the same time in these sites, particularly sites where you have to move dirt, to create those landforms that when we do get to that stage and we can let the big, big guys get out and move whatever needs to be moved, that it it looks already like a golf course It already starts to feel natural. It already starts to have a character because we did our job well at that level. Then to the next level, which is kind of more of the micro level of the shaping. So we're able to not build, you know, so that all of the, as you know, in Lynx golf course, I think these are one of the things to me when people talk about modern versus golden age is is really the land in modern all of the land connected the greens were built into nice natural sites sites were natural but what we try to do is build and connect all these landforms so the golf course looks like it just lays into those natural landforms and are extensions of the natural landforms And a lot of these modern courses a lot of the ideas are pretty good design wise but you have each element individual, you have a grass hollow, and then you have a bunker, and then you have another bunker, and then you have a green, and then you have a T, and all these are in five T's. And in opposed we're trying to build landforms first at a macro scale, you know, where we have these types of sites either to dial up or turn down the volume. Now, of course, you get a, a site like a cow club or some of the other places where we've done renovations or some of the courses we've worked out in Europe where we're really, you know, going into a Tom Simpson course, there is no earth moving. You go straight to shaping. That's, that's, that's what you're doing. Right. He brings so up a know, good Derek, point. We, is that, is that uh, go ahead, Jim.
1: Well, he brings up a good point, Derek, about a, a golf course. That's sectional, that it's independent. Uh, 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 each hole is independent of itself. And that's what Kings Barnes did so well From the top of the road to the ocean, it blended all those features together. So it was modernism, but when you get down in the setting, it looks like it was always there because he didn't sectionalize it. He -hmm. blended it, and he just told you. And that's what I experienced, Kyle, when I played with Mark, is that everything kind of flowed, and it wasn't independent. And that's what happened. In the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. and early 90s, Derek, everything was individual. It wasn't relying on other parts of the golf course to make and there's it still,
2: There's still some of that out there today, Jim. But, I, I mean, certainly, you know, there, there's more and more people that are really focused on that and the artistry of it and, and marrying all those landforms land together. But if you have these – I mean, you know, these – great sites, which the landforms are just there, it's great just to jump out and go build right into it. They're not yeah. destroying like we saw that period where somebody would just plow through those landforms and flatten out the fairway. Right yeah. Now people are at least, so, you know, part of it is, is, okay, what is my site that then should dictate my response. And when, when all those landforms are there, embrace them. When they're not there, then, you know, why not create them? Yeah. And, uh, because I think the best golf experience you have is can have in, in expose people to is links golf. Yeah. And so, you know, let, let's try to bring back because the dimension of links golf, the multiple lines of play, uh, all of the things that, you know, the spill-offs, the roll-offs, all of those little landforms, And yes, it's an aerial game, but the ball does land at some point. It does land. <laughs> so when it lands, what happens? Yeah. And, um, so, yeah, I, I think we, we've come a long, long way. It's, it's really great. I mean, uh, I, I'm really excited to see, you know, the transformation, like you, you talked about. Why did it take so long? I don't know, but I'm sure glad it's here. And we had a little thing at String, String Song with um, uh, Tom was there, uh, Gil was there, uh, David Kidd was there. We kind of paneled the four of us, actually. And it was interesting realizing, like, here are these guys – that have all come through different journeys and how different probably my journey is different as any of them. Cause you know, David growing up around the links courses and of course, you and Tom kind of covering more of a similar kind of background, but how, when we talk about architecture and what we love and our passion and what we're actually creating, how connected that is, but the journey we, the road we, we came down to get there was in many ways, very different to get there, but it's kind of, It's kind of great to see in our own ways we've landed because as you well know, I started working in Europe with Jones, did a lot of the Caribbean and Europe work. So when I started my business, I got work, you know, in the neighborhood. That's kind of how it is. You start working neighborhood, people know you in that neighborhood. And so, you know, I really have not been back into the U.S. probably as much as I, I wanted to. But when I started to come back think i need to make more of a you know the fleet starting to to downturn here and uh certainly you know we ended up doing more things like a cow club
0: yeah jim it reminds me a little bit kyle when you're talking about shaping the whole landscape and connecting everything on on a large scale jim it reminds me of when we spoke to tim jackson and he talked about that's how tom fazio would do it and he learned that and you're not just going to do and kyle you mentioned it cow club too you're not just going to like make a make a sharp cut and blow the landscape out of here you've got to carry that line way out to make it look natural and Kyle Mm -hmm. that's what you're talking about but it does come down to your finish work ultimately doesn't it that make that connects everything together but and and it's it sells the story that that you're presenting at Kings Barn for instance um, or Yaz you know you've created this thing so now it's believable but it's what makes those golf courses great is also the architecture it comes down to what's the ball going to do where where are you trying to play the ball? And I think that's what separates the great designs that we've seen now. It's not it's it's the landscapes for sure. It's how you create them, in your case in particular, but it really comes down to the shaping, the feature work, the contour, right. how how you, you're constructing the holes on a strategic level. And and right. that's not quite the same quality across the board all the time.
2: No, absolutely. I mean you're you're literally working from hundreds of acres to try to put together a route. And then you get down into, let's say, feet to create some kind of, you know, so when you go out there, you know, you have a grading plan, you have something that you're going to, you know, where, what you need to do with that front. And, and again, you know, if you, have, if you have already the natural contours, that, that can really be all built from site. And we'll, you know, say we don't have the grading contractor necessarily build everything. Right, I mean, we'll have areas that are just built from site where we're just going to go in because it's really a natural part of the site. But we do that, and then you get down into, you know, we work a lot metrically. You get into not just inches, you're into millimeters, right? You're really down into that fine bit, and that is really the difference in, in what you say, which is the icing on the cake. It kind of takes everything that you did, kind of good at phase one, you did, you know, well at phase two, and now you're into the, the last part of, of it. And you know, like Kings Barnes was built basically in in a in a summer. I mean, it rolled over a bit to the next next year. We had a little bit of you know grassing and seeding, but you know, I spent a hundred days out there. You know, over over that, and that being on site really does make a difference. And you know, I, I mean, I can remember, especially in Asia. You know, if you pick up a rake or you, you jump on a sand pro in Asia, I mean, they're like this is the architect, the architect doesn't do this, you know, and I can remember <laughs> the first time I did that, you know, they were, oh my gosh, they were feeling like they were really doing something wrong. They were almost embarrassed, right? right. But they don't, you know, they don't kind of get that, that we love doing that part of it. But, um, you know, I what I try to do, because we've got guys that I've worked with for a long time, and we speak the same language, and they kind of know, and they kind of enjoy the fact that a lot of the design principles we do are that, well, they are, they're the same thing because I'm constantly trying to bring the things I love about links golf into that particular terrain. But, um, they're, they, they know that, but they're, they also love the fact that we vary that style because people think what I find most Europeans, they talk about American golf as kind of a monolith, yeah. you know, American design. Americans talk about, links courses as a monolith it's a links course but within we know within the courses within american design you know parens, american design that is very different there's a lot of styles of bunkers and tees and greens and da, da, da on and on the same thing with links courses you know i mean you look at links i mean we could you know go through that but i mean they're so different in terms of the green sizes forget the third dimension i mean Gosh, I mean, look at Prestwick and look at the old course. I mean, you know, when when I tell people that those double greens at the old course, if you take the double greens and you split them into half, right, you know, they're 20,000 square feet. Those things are an acre average, right? They're over a half acre per green. Um, When you play the old course, you don't even really appreciate how huge those are. That's so unique. Prestwick is the opposite, right? So Lynx golf courses, there's such a wide variety of architecture within Lynx architecture, but the principles of the multiple lines of play, firm and fast, you know, the, the, the connectivity of things in the landforms that really work together, you know, are, are so magnificent in their own individual ways. Um, and so, you know, those are the things that, you know, we, we try to do so that we're not I mean, there are architects and maybe that works. Right. I mean, people know certain architects, if they hire them, they're getting this and they're going to be between here and here. They're not going to really go too far out the line. I mean, principle wise, I mean, I'm talking about stylistically, the, the design principles. I mean, I'm really trying to work this out on paper in terms of the carries and all the things so that when we get out into the field. I'm still out in front of these guys when they're shaping. On my visits, I'm there, I'm working with them, but I'm also out in front on the next hole and the next hole and thinking and saying and, sh- and seeing what we had on paper and is this really, the, the, I mean, did we do it right? And checking the distances and checking, because there is, you know, there, there's real geometry involved in what we do, you know, how the ball carries and lands and all that those, and so that we, we get things really in the right place, and so at each level, kind of checking and double-checking, and then doing the green sketches, doing even fairway sketches, and doing all of that then on site. And um, you can tell my enthusiasm for construction, Jim. I love being in the dirt. Love being in the dirt. I know you live in the dirt, which is uh, way, too much, well, way some,
1: too much fun. some people would see that as a negative. <laughs>
2: well, I don't know. I mean uh,
1: – they, they, they conjure up the image of Pigpen on, on – uh, <laughs> And this little guy walking around with dust just following <laughs> him around everywhere. But thankfully I learned from the ground up yeah. with Pete. I learned from the ground up and now I've applied all of those things, Kyle, right. all of those things that Pigpen did with this yeah. little dust bowl walking around. And Absolutely. now I put a pen and pencil and I do those routings and I get all of that I've conjured up over those years and yes, I enjoy the construction, but we still have to put pen and paper to show no, an owner what we're going absolutely. To do.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so, you know, if I had joined in, let's say with Jones and they were just simply doing, as I said, some of the architects who, you know, you just did it on paper and you shipped it off and they built it. Right. But the yeah. fact we had our own in-house construction company, I mean, that was huge to be able to really see the things built all the way through and have guys in your own firm that said, Hey rookie, you know, I mean, next time you do this, you know, the water needs to run downhill and not uphill. You know, I didn't make that mistake, but I mean, I made plenty, that's for sure. And I
1: agree. It's all the fun part. It's all the, it is,
2: it is. And you know, it, it is so much that a transformation of being, even when we thought we were really, you know, modern, you know, you read any old book, right. And it says in this modern time, you know, architects talk about how far the ball went a hundred years ago in this modern era. Right. And so every era <laughs> is a modern point. era to, to us. But in that time we thought, you know, we were doing something really great, yeah. but to, to now the demands for the conditioning the pressure on the superintendents and to get the drainage and to get the irrigation and to, to, do the whole thing. And then at the same time, be able to do what we want to do architecturally. And as you know, links courses, guess what? Water sometimes runs towards a bunker.
1: And in a hole.
2: <laughs> and in and a hole. And still drains. <laughs> exactly. And so, um, but it's uh, a, it's a great business to be in and and the kind of courses we've been able and and, and just, I love, I've enjoyed the people, the cultures, um, and just the places we've been able to work and continue to work. Um, it's been great. And, and to see, I don't know about you, Jim, but one of the biggest thrills is you get on a golf course and you say, you know, I know this is going to be an awesome hole, but I got one over here that is not exactly my best student, you know? And, um, to see that one sometimes become the favorite of, of the litter, or at least in that conversation, is incredibly rewarding, you know. so And
1: Pete used to always tell me, let's play with it for a while. Let's play with it a while, Jim. And so exactly. they're not all perfect. They're not all scholarly. They're not all straight A's. And mm-hmm. if you just play with it a while, they'll come about.
0: We've t- touched on a number of your projects, and I think one thing that's very clear, and, and Jim knows this, Jim and I talk about this, is the importance of the client, the Im- uh, importance of the, the the people that you're working for. I'm going to ask you to switch roles and put on your developer hat. If you were a developer along the lines of Mark Parson and or some of the other uh, influential people that you've worked for and built golf courses for, where would you be exploring right now? What part of the world would you be in uh, interested in developing a golf course And what would it be like? Would it be along the same things that we've seen? Or do you have ideas in your head that might take golf architecture in a slightly different direction?
2: Wow. That's a, I got to give it to you that I've never been asked that question. Never been asked anything like that. I mean, usually people, you know, ask, you know, if, if you were an owner uh, and I do try to put on my hat, I do try to talk to our owners is, is, is that, you know, I'm sitting in their chair. That's usually the thing I try to do is kind of work alongside them and say, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's difficult. I mean, there are some beautiful areas of the world that are under golfed, but it is a very tough political situation as an outsider to work in those places. Um, I mean, there's beautiful places in, in South America without naming countries um, but to go down there as somebody outside, and I think that this is where, uh, if if you wanted to say as an owner wanted to do something outside the country, I think you, I think to have somebody that's inside the country that's connected inside the country is really important. I mean, if you, otherwise you can get stalled out forever. Or, you know, you, you get half under construction and then you can't get finished because you just can't believe the things that happen. I mean, it's tough enough here, but it, it's it's you can be somebody from the outside and come to the states and, and actually work and make money. But in some of the countries, it's, you know, no matter what they say, it's very tough. Um, but as far as locales, I mean, that's where I would say there's places that you could do this. And at some of these locations, though, they're beautiful and you could build golf really inexpensively, like you can on any kind of, let's say, sandy type ground. But the thing is, is then where's your market? Because you're, you have to develop a market. Uh, I mean, I think there's a lot of people that are looking for these sites or even existing golf courses. So to me today, to look for something that has a market nearby that might be buy an existing golf course. And go and transform that golf course, right. for example, versus necessarily going out and doing another one. I mean, the, the sites we do tend to be ones where you say tend to be more transformative. I mean, I'm one of the things I'm proud of is how we're able to create a lot of new nature within our golf courses because sometimes, Jim, I refer to it as turning back geologic time. Kings Barnes yeah. was one of those. I mean, we yeah. went in and made cuts and we found old clay drain pipe that, you know, handmade piping that was at uh, one time was shallow, you know, that whole bridge was buried underground. Nobody even knew it was there. Right.
1: That's the, that's the weird thing that I w- realized when Mark told me about that bridge yeah. It's like, wow, that's unbelievable.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't want to get too far on that. It's an, a, kind of a story, but I did really an as built and an as discovered. It was credible because Bard Reynolds was the guy out there and he was uncovering from the top down and this thing was twisting and turning, almost mimicking the stakes we had out there for the new one that I had designed. Because we knew water started at the top and went to the bottom, but we all thought it ran straight down the old road that was there. But anyway, there's things like that that happened at Kingsbarns that were just incredible, they, as designed and as as discovered. But regardless, it's sometimes turning back geologic time. We have a new course in the Netherlands we just opened, and it's all a Heathland kind of course. But the farmers had gone in, and they just took all those little sand dunes, and they just leveled it and farmed it years ago. And they, you know, that's how they did it in that country. So going back and there's some natural dune parks nearby and recreating, you know, and having the heather and the gorse and, you know, all the fescues and doing all that. And and in the process, we've taken farm fields just like we've done in Prague and you, you then even, you know, some of them had pockets of forest and so forth, but we've taken a lot of this land and we've not only turned it to the Gulf, but we've actually created a lot of nature And recreation of nature, which is which is really a great story. Always, I think, for golf is that you know what we can do in the process of golf course to, you know, reestablish nature and and really kind of turn back geologic time. But um, as far as advising owners, Derek, I mean, I think one of the realities, um, and, and I think most people today grasp that there used to be a time they thought that they were clever and they could make money in golf. But it is very tough to make money in golf. I think, you know, uh, if you look at what it costs to buy the land, the entitlement cost can be huge in the time it takes to do the entitlement costs. And then, of course, then, you know, you, you have the cost of building the golf course. So if you're willing to swallow that, can I make money just on cash flow and operations? And I find that most of the people that are out there looking for sites and talking to us about what they might be wanting to do they still hate to lose money every month. They least want to have it ongoing up op- because that's what it really kills you. I mean, most people can write a check. These guys, I mean, in, in, I, mean I, I think, that, you know, people get to the kind of money we don't even imagine having mm-hmm. where they just go, you know, I really don't care anymore. And if I die with a billion or a million or a dollar, I don't care. I just want to do the things I want to do. And I want to have my own golf club, but still they don't want to underwrite that every month. So that's what I would really look at. Harder than anything would be the ongoing operation. So I haven't answered your question because I don't have a good answer for you. I wish I did, but um, I think Italy is is we you know done some courses there. I mean, it's not a golfing country, but could be, mm-hmm. could be much more than it is uh, in Europe. I think Spain has done you know a lot of golf and 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 not necessarily always great golf because a lot of them were tied to real estate. There's probably some opportunities still there uh, to build a different. Flavor, of course, uh, and Portugal and those kind of climates. But, um, you know, I think South America could be a good climate, could be a good place. But I think you've really got to be on the inside of those countries to do it. I mean, we saw that during the Olympics. Look how hard that was. Really hard.
0: Well, I, you know, I, I like what you said about redevelopment of existing golf courses. That's that's clearly in the United States, at least, where, excuse me, where our golf is, is heading uh, there's right. so many opportunities to to rehab old courses that really could use the the TLC and reinvigorate their local communities,
2: mm-hmm. and even rehab new courses. I mean, some of the new courses that were built that we were talking about that we, you know, they were just so compromised the way they were built. And now, if they're if they're not a core golf course, sometimes that's really hard to do because they were so compromised. Right. Yeah. But there's, there's some courses and you know, we've had some of those, we have one where we, you know, it was privately held and, and I think they probably got a little bit too big and too bold and a little bit too excited. And we've kind of been able to make it much more walkable and allow them to do some things that they, you know, they, they aspire to do, have events and, you know, really have more of a walking experience. So, but um, no, it's uh, it it's a, uh, certainly I think the future now, I mean, people are doing things definitely more feet on the ground here. I mean, Europe's been interesting to work in because the mindset was always, even where we had a hotel or we had residential components, it wasn't people wanting to have access directly to the golf course. I mean, they like to look at the golf, but they, you know, they didn't want to play or they didn't want to live directly, you know, open up the curtain in the morning. There's somebody standing out, you know, on a tee or a green (laughs) right in front of my, my window. They didn't have that kind of appetite. So we were able always to kind of build projects that were, were more about golf than they were about stringing out linear uh, feet of, of development, but also people looked at the golf component as needing to stand alone. Sure. They might, you know, put some money that they made from the residential develop to underwrite phase one clubhouse and some of that bit or entitlements to create the overall story and value, but they looked to have a golf product, that would at least pay for itself going forward, which we we didn't do here. And um, thus, I think why we've seen so many courses go back to banks or close, just because they were never sustainable to begin with, right? But I think now at least people have been there and done that. And so people are, I mean, and, and look at, you know, Jim, some of the beautiful courses that were built in this country in the hinterlands. And unfortunately, most of them were built on great ground and they were cheap. They're struggling. They're struggling to stay open at this point. And
1: you wonder how we could be wiser with that golf setting, how we could Mm -hmm. do better at what we do. Uh, But, again, that's for another two-hour discussion on how to be better at what we do, not just in the design, Derek, but in the operations and the presentation of our designs.
2: Yeah. Well, and and the thing I love about the European model, which I do – uh, you know, because that was my point of reference. I mean, when people were talking about going green over here, I was laughing, right? Because I'm saying you were the same people in America that were making fun of us in Europe, when we were in low fertility programs, right? We were had, because that allows us to have less maintenance, which means golf's more affordable, right? And so we were always having healthy turf, but we didn't feel compelled in Europe to grow grass, But when we came back over to the States, people had a whole different mindset. And that's one of the, I think the things I've loved over the years about how we can all be designing for this game with the same rules of golf, right? USGA, RNA, making the rules of golf for equipment and the whole thing, right? Same grasses. I mean, you know, you can have fescue here, you can have Bermuda over there and and all of that, but how differently the game is, is, is played, Mm -hmm. And even how they think about what is good conditioning. So Europe, they were happy to have the golf, the, the turf alive and growing and, and that, I mean, you know, alive. But here, I mean, we were always pumping the grass up and it had to be green and it had to have a lot of color. And, and so it was just this vicious cycle. But so here in Europe, they've been doing it. They've been being made fun of by the American colleagues. And now all of a sudden, the American colleagues are giving these seminars about lecturing the you Euro- trying to, I mean, the Europeans are like typical Americans, right? The ugly Americans, right? <laughs> yeah. we, we're doing this all along. And then in about six months, you guys have turned around and now you've invented this idea. Are you kidding me? So it is funny. But even how, you know, for, for Asia, how golf is a whole day experience. And, uh, you know, it's two and a half hours or, you know, usually nine holes, a lunch time. So a morning tea time, a lunch time, an afternoon tea time. It's a whole day. And the Scottish are, you know, in and out 18 holes. If it's more than three hours, they played slow. Right. And, uh, you know, so so how different the game is actually played in, in terms of just the, the social aspect of it. And, um, you know, within the same rules and the same ball and the same everything, it's, it's it's kind of fun. And even, you know, as you're designing the golf course, you know, we're thinking about how the clubhouse interfaces, how the function, how you move in and out of the whole space. And so we're engaged in all of that uh, from from start to finish. And I think, you know, our, our clients really benefit because they have good architects. Maybe we work with some great architects, but their their limitation on the function of a clubhouse, how that all operates and so forth, they you know, they really don't have that broader frame to even know the questions they should be asking, you know, as, as to how this is going to operate and function. So we really try to work with our owners side by side so that whether they're walking into a new country for them, um, you know, first time and they haven't worked in that country or, you know, most of them, they may have done a golf course. We, You know, it's great when you have a, an owner who's done some golf before, either as a partner or done new golf courses. Um but, you know, there's so much you see this, Jim, I'm sure, how much education you have to do with each owner um, to just help them make the best decisions. Because, I mean, sometimes it isn't a question of right, right or wrong. It's just really what your your preference is. And we're trying hard to leave our owner with something that they have ownership in. They, they own it. And they've been part of that process to the point that... You know, we know when we do that handoff that they now, this is their child. They're going to raise it. They're going to love it. They're going to maintain it. They understand why we want to mow into the bunker so the ball rolls in and don't grow high rough, you know, all those kind of little details. So
0: well, it, it's all part of this ongoing journey of golf course architecture worldwide. And we always think that, that we're getting better. As you said before, every generation thinks they're advancing golf and, and so do we. But uh, th- this is our point of reference right now. We think we've we we think we've got it right. And yeah, we, we, do. we won't I mean, find I mean, out until later if we do or not.
2: No, no, no. I think we are in a sweet spot. I mean, when you look at where golf came from and grew, and you know, and because another track of this is the growth of the game and the health of the game, and we're talking architecture, but you know, I mean, look, I mean, I, I, I think if the the health of the game, I don't, I think if the USGA and the RNA don't change the rules of golf today, you know, I mean, I, I think what the Shambos doing is great. I mean, I love it. I love how overt he is about what he's doing, his whole technique and how he's just going to, because it shows you with all the technology we have. No matter how long we make these golf courses. And I think just in my short time in the industry, how long. I mean, remember when Jack Nicholas in the late 80s was hitting it, average was 260, what was it, 267? And everybody moved their turn points back to 270 yards. I mean, an average player is, I mean, like a really short player is carrying at 280. So the average carry now in a bunker is like 300 yards. These guys are driving it. I mean, it's ridiculous. And then, you know, so if, if they don't pull back the ball and club now do something to, to create a standard that puts a governor on it, I don't know if it'll ever happen. Architects have been writing about this for a hundred years. I realized my job, you know, I haven't been one out there to, to beat the drum or really complain. Cause I realize at the end of the day, my focus is on designing to the rules of the golf rules of golf, but that still, you know, most of our courses they want to have or they would like to have or they have a pro event. But that's one week a year, two weeks max, 50 weeks a year at least. You know, there's mere mortals playing the golf course. So the delta between the championship player and the the, the good amateur, even a club, you know, you go into these clubs and what the club champion thinks that he's, he's all that. And then you bring a real pro out to hit the ball and they just can't even believe it. you know, how far the ball carries in in 16 year olds that are U S open qualifier kids, you know, clubs are in shock when they see these kids come around. So I think something, I I think we're desperate to do something, to be honest with you. I mean, what's wrong with baseball. We don't use aluminum bats, right? I mean, we could have balls and bats that make, you know, every, every single a home run or every fly ball a home run, let's say that. Uh, and, And I just think that the fun of the game and where golf really grew if you go back to that was on links courses we played match play and i'm happy to see things like more people playing match play and in that coming back but that aspect of it but the shot making that links golf gives people you know i mean mean, it really provides people the shot making aspects of golf which i think is really what where the game grew. And so if we're really talking about moving the game forward, growing the game of golf, keeping people involved, I mean, it's so intimidating for people to look at these people play. And if your first experience is walking a pro event, you'd say, I could never play this game. You know, I could, I mean, it used to be you played in a pro am, and at least you'd see your pro, you know, somewhere other than the green, because now you're playing a forward tee way behind where they are. So you're always up there. And then, you know, maybe you meet them at the green for a second and then, but they're, then they hit it so far beyond you, you know, um, you don't see each other. And, uh, so anyway, I I would love to see something happen on that front. I I think it's, uh, it's way overdue to be honest with you. And I think the game would really benefit by it. Um, we have had clients where we've done things that were like parlous golf courses and we did a, a really cool deal in Corsica like that. And, uh, where it really is more about shot making and, you know, they still, you know, People want to have a scorecard, but it's really the the whole idea is to show up. And you can play it multiple ways, not just clockwise and counterclockwise. So those kind of fun golf courses are great to see introduced. But still, I think we need, from a pro standpoint, there needs to be a standard. And um, because how do we make golf more affordable when every 10 years, every decade, we have to tear up our golf course and start over to to have pros there? I mean, you're
0: that, that's yeah. again, like that's another. We're gonna have to reschedule another <laughs> three-hour section <laughs> to kind of yeah, hit so on all these that. topics here.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but I mean, there is so many things within golf, you know, out that affect, you know, the game which we love and we're designing for, and we design passionately to make the game be more fun, to make people want to be there, to make people want to come back, and and to really have that that experience and you know not everybody gets to travel not everybody gets to have the experiences we've had so how do you bring that to that locale and at least bring that dimension of links golf with the alternate lines of play and firmer faster surfaces and the ball rolling and and feeding or rolling away and all those kind of things so there's that added dimension and fun but
0: well, just to break that, that's a great ending point that lands our conversation. We, I asked you earlier, what took us so long to get here? We are kind of here in, in some degree. There's so many great thinkers in your profession that are, that appreciate that and get that and yeah, given Absolutely. the opportunity would build golf courses that are, that are multiple and open and and provide that type of and style of golf and, and options. So Jim, I, did you get everything out of Kyle that, that you wanted to get out of him? Uh We could keep going. I know. Uh, I was
1: starting, he was starting to talk about uh, mere mortals. (laughs) I'll stick with the mere mortal design company because you can't, you can't keep pace with that ball distance. And so for me to think about the distance that people are hitting it today, I can't begrudge them, but to all stick with the mere mortals and all design and build fun and playable and walkable golf courses, I'm okay with that.
2: Absolutely, Jim, I'm with you. You know, you've got to design for the 50 weeks a year. You can't worry about that one or two weeks. You know, I mean, you can think about the setup and how we, you know, maybe can set the golf course up, grow the rough end. We can do bits and bobs like that. But ultimately, I mean, the, the, the thing is, it's a bit scary to me, is even on the mere mortals, there's big, strong guys with this technology in hand, and they just hit it. I mean when they hit it ugly, they hit it ugly further and uh and then you know there there's issues involved in that and uh so we'll we'll see where that goes. It's not in our hands, it's in the hands of the, of those who make the rules of golf. We'll see what they do but uh uh it's it's a good time in golf, it's a good time in golf architecture. I'll tell you another topic. I don't know what you guys have talked about it, but I think what we've seen and guess I know we need to wrap this up is you know, within the club or within golf, how many people have come back to their local club or come back to their local golf course during this COVID period? And I'm sure you guys have have talked about that, but even I've been very impressed that clubs have served their membership or provided things for people that, you know, they could drive and pick up their groceries. They've used their very creative things, I think, that have come out on not just the golf sector, we've seen it in other sectors, but within just, if we focus on our golf, very creative things that people have done. And I think this has been a time for people to realize that, you know, the club or the golf course, it, it's a place where my friends are. It's a safe place. It's outdoors. It's in nature. And it, it really is, a, 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 I think, been a great time to see that, uh, you know, the, the, your, your local golf club and kind of the importance of being amongst friends. You know, People came back. A lot yeah, of which is it, it, and that's been not just in the US as you probably know, it's been everywhere. Yeah. It's been every I mean the only place that has been really heard is on the standalone resort courses, which were hotel, you know, those kind of things where there's no travel and just there's there's nothing going on. But within golf, as we generally think about it, is a club and, and as a public experience. where people live, yes, yeah. exactly, Derek.
0: Well, great talk, guys. Really appreciate that, Kyle. Thanks for coming on and joining us. It was good to talk well, to you. Thanks for having me. Uh, tune in next week, Kyle. We'll be back. We're going to do another two hours. <laughs> wrap yeah. some of the, Wrap up some of these issues.
2: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Hey, I, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Uh, if you guys can solve all the world's problems between now, we we won't have to come back. No again, chance.
1: So. No chance. All right.
0: We need
2: you, you
1: guys. Thank thank you. Kyle. That was a blast. Thank you.
0: Thank you, guys. Appreciate what you're doing. Hey. All right. That was Kyle Phillips. Jim, it was funny because I had meant to, at the beginning of that conversation, jump in where we left off in our intro about talking about the difference between minimalism and naturalism to get Kyle's thoughts on it. I've always considered him a naturalist, somebody who is not afraid to move a lot of earth and has to move a lot of earth, but when you see his golf courses, they look like they could be a minimalist design. I was really interested to get his commentary on that, and we got so waylaid and so far out in left field, I couldn't figure a way to bring it back. So I just went with the conversation. We did kind of touch on it uh, there toward the end of, uh, regarding Kings Barn and the reaction to that, and how people go to Kings Barn. A lot of people go to Kings Barn and think that. That golfer existed like that, and they just kind of, you know, mowed greens and uh, dugout bunkers and whatever. And uh, as we heard, there was a tremendous amount of forethought and construction work that went into that because it's not a natural link site, yet it looks like one. So uh, things didn't go as planned, but we got there eventually, and um, I thought that was a delightful conversation with Kyle.
1: Well, I thought that your your discussion about minimalism uh, would have applied to King's Barnes, because the minute you step off that road and the minute you enter to the clubhouse and the minute you work your way down to the ocean, you think to yourself, man, this thing looks like it's always been here. So it's that creativeness that he did to, to evoke minimalism, the look of minimalism, but he maximized the landform with Mark Parson. And I will tell you, there are fuels holes out there that they didn't do much, too. They didn't have to, sitting right on the ocean. But that stuff up, the finishing holes, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, uh, unbelievable. The story about unearthing that bridge that crosses the 18 burn, right. unbelievable. I mean, that just tells you what has gone on in most of these landforms over the ages. I mean, ages, as he talks about.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's centuries old, uh, you know, think of how many generations and families and ownership and how that land's turned over and the different purposes that it's been used for, and that happens throughout the UK, and uh, there's something very special about it, speaking in golf terms, when you come across an ancient relic like that on a a golf site, you know, you can just envision the spirit of golf living through that land through these different features. I thought that the,
1: the interesting part for me was... When he talked about his love for for uh, for King's Barnes and his love for Yas Lynx, but I was surprised that he didn 't talk much about dundonald and that 's a golf course I saw of his over on the other side uh, 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 by Western Gales, one of my favorite golf courses and I thought he did an unbelievable job creating Lynx golf in a pretty cool setting, but he moved some dirt there, and again that 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 topic of minimalism and 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 creating uh, the look of minimalism, uh, you can't say that you didn't do anything when you go to Dundonald. You can't say you didn't do anything when you went to King's Barnes, but the look and feel feels right.
0: Yeah, for sure. You know, it, it's, it's just an interesting he's an interesting person in golf because so much of his success has come overseas and he's built new golf courses in the United States, but he's really, you know, I think the, the crowning achievement, and I don't know if he'd agree with me or not. And, uh, but it just seems from my perspective, the crowning achievement is what we talked about the Cal club, which was a, i guess a renovation remodel restoration type of all of that bundled into one and it just it's always a mystery given the quality of his work around the globe and the the way his products turn out that he hasn't gotten at least one you know big new course commission uh in, in the United States at least you know in the last 10 or 15 years since we've seen this modern renaissance of uh, great sites that uh, occasionally come around, and it that's true for a lot of architects and designers who uh, haven't had a chance to work on a, on a great new site a great old mcdonald like property someplace like that um I don't know what the answer is to that it's just the way it is and maybe Kyle's got uh you know something cooking right now that will check that box, but uh at the same time he seems you know fairly content to to do what he's doing and he's he's building a, an amazing career he's definitely one of the top designers working in the in the game right now well i can
1: tell you that he's got a foothold in europe and he 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 explained to us why he had that foothold it's years and years of working over there under the jones banner mm-hmm. you know figuring out how to do that stuff so his foothold is strong there but then he's got to come back to the united states does a great job at the cal club but but owners are looking at, well, who? Bill Coor, Ben Crenshaw. Owners are looking at Gil Hans. So Kyle Phillips, how does he measure up into that stature of, of those guys? David Kidd working working hard in the U.S. So he's got a foothold in Europe. Maybe he'll come and, 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 again, like you said, he's got one or two projects raring to go. We just don't know about
0: him. Yeah, and he's one of those designers that is – proficient at different things as we heard we know because uh, as you just mentioned coming up through the jones uh network you learn a certain way to build golf courses you learn how to uh, have sk- different skill sets he's kind of like dana fry in that you know he's capable as we've talked about and we've seen in his projects of of really reorienting and recreating vast landscapes and and different scenes and making it look like nothing's been done which is a very unique skill set to certain designers who've had an opportunity to work in that method and and I think you know that just kind of puts him in a in a unique category that would be very attractive uh to to certain developers uh being able to to go to properties that that don't look like a great golf site and when he leaves they look like they were always a great <laughs> golf site
1: he wipes his hands and says, I'm done. And you look out over the landscape and he said, well, what did he do? It doesn't look like he did anything. That's a high compliment. But you know what shocked me? And I didn't realize this, that he, he said to us, he said, well, you know, we had our own construction company. When you think about Jones Jr. Bobby Jones Jr. You don't think about a construction company. Uh, He said they had shapers. They had their own guys that built their stuff. When you think about in-house shapers or you think about talent, you always think about the guys that are working for, for Coor and Crenshaw, the talent that they have surrounding them. I never hear about the talent surrounding Jones Jr., but yet he reflected on that as being an important part of his development in the field. I was surprised by that.
0: How about you? Yeah, I mean, I wonder if that goes back to the, his, his, Jones's father, Robert Trent Jones, having his own in-house construction company. Which was somewhat controversial at the time. I mean, I I know that that that's a touchy subject <laughs> to be able you know to have all of these yep. things under under one umbrella. Uh, right. Um. So and I don't know. I this is not to say anything about Bobby's production or what how Kyle worked, but that's what it reminded me of, and reminded us of when we talked to Reese Jones about working with Bill Baldwin and and how he you know yes that's was, true was uh, taken under his wing, and that he was he was Trent Jones's you know design foreman essentially
1: that's true I, you know, I I could have mentioned that to, to Kyle himself but I was surprised uh, he was Kyle was much more versed in the dirt than I had thought and yet they do they do plans right they do plans they said they do plans but yet uh, he was said I, I was just as good as in, in the dirt as, as anybody in the Jones camp
0: That was yeah he had a, he filled a special role there um, I'm always intrigued by Yas Links in Dubai. Uh, I've seen photographs of it, and it looks um, very unique. And I, there, I know Gil did a, a course right in that area, too. And I once saw, I think it might have been on Golf Club Atlas, but there was sort of a side-by-side photo presentation of a hole-by-hole, the two courses side-by-side. And I, I confess to sort of being, through photographs, more attracted to Kyle, Kyle's uh, Yas Links than, than the one that Gil was doing.
1: You know, and he did mention about being a, a golf course at Yas Links that he was proud of because of the lines uh, that that he created across the whole landscape. And he brought up a point that I want to talk to you about just a little bit. Sectional golf. He said, sectional golf. I was trying to get away from that. A lot of the times in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, in that era that, you know, I don't, I don't brag about uh, in golf course design, Everybody wanted to build golf courses that were independent, independent holes of each other, their own little spectrum of design. And yet we all know that where golf was born in the links lands of Scotland and Ireland, golf holes flowed from one, one part to another. They were always almost a combination of three or four holes. And so when he talked about Yass links, having those long flowing lines and not being sectional, that caught me by surprise. I don't know that I'm going to go to Yas Links on the way to somewhere soon. But if I could, I'd sure like to see what he meant by long, flowing lines. Although I don't think that it would be much different than what Coor and Crenshaw would do or Gil Hans would do. But you said it looks different. So there has to be something that Kyle did different than what Gil and Jim did out there.
0: You're right that there is a period in time, and it's still – Uh, pertinent to the way many people think, but there was a period in time where this concept of every hole is isolated and and you're in your own arena or atmosphere from one hole to the next and you don't see any other holes. And that was perceived as an ideal. That was an idea that uh, attracted many people. And I don't know if that was just a kind of almost like a market-led reaction because so many golf courses were built, were strung through housing developments or something or, Good or, point. or, or spun out through, through forests because of some land plan. And they couldn't, you couldn't, you know, run holes n- near each other, or you didn't have, you didn't have basically core golf sites where you could really maximize, uh, contiguous property so you know you ha- you sold the virtues of of being alone on every hole and <laughs> of course that's what you know and they, everybody always trace it back to pine valley like that was the great thing about pine valley is that you know every hole was its own unique experience well yeah that that's great at pine valley it definitely works at pine valley but yeah. it doesn't mean you know that that doesn't uh tra- always translate it's a different experience when you when you're uh you know out in a Western Montana, or actually that would be not bad in Western Montana, but in Florida going, you know, with holes out in some wetland area somewhere.
1: Or or, or how about the Sandhills? Being out there by yourself, uh, feeling like you were the only person out there. You might run and hide. <laughs> You never know who's going to come and get you. You're all by yourself. Yeah. So you you want to see somebody else on the, the next Where's the emergency week?
0: phone? This <laughs> is <laughs> like pre-cell phone days. I'm, I'm in trouble. <laughs> S.O.S. S.O.S. Yeah, the flares go up. <laughs> but this is kind of an example of, of how... Uh, taste change is because now we're in this, this uh, era where especially we see it during uh, course restorations and renovations where tree removal and tree thinning is a uh, a really important thing and and most people see the benefit of that once they see the product being executed you limb everything up and all of a sudden you can see across two or three or four holes and that's very attractive that's appealing especially when you couldn't really have those those open vistas before so I feel like there's more excitement now from players to be in a landscape where you do sense the connectivity to the holds, and you're not in isolated pockets so uh, that would that's an indication to me that, uh, as uh, I'm reminded once again of of how tastes are always changing and whatever we are really digging on right now is probably <laughs> not going to be uh, the same things that we're digging on in the future
1: are you telling me that we're going to go back to Golf courses lined by homes in the next twenty five years.
0: My God, I hope not. <laughs> I think we, hopefully, we, there are some absolute truths. I, I don't know for sure, but let's let's hope that if so, that's one.
1: But I think your observation was right that when when you double loaded a golf hole with homes, you were going to be by yourself in between the canyon, and so that was sold as unique and individualistic, and 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 that was okay, but. Man, I just – there's something about greeting your friends or or looking across the landform and seeing the topography that you're walking or the distant views. uh, That's much more enjoyable to me.
0: Well, and I wasn't going to bring this up, but now that you mentioned it, it popped into my head and I just – that's – I just have to bring it up now since it popped into my head, but you were recently on the No Laying Up podcast, which I, I recommend everybody to go listen to. A great interview with Jim. If you like to hear Jim and you don't like to hear me, then then this is <laughs> going to be your cup of tea. <laughs> but you spoke a lot about Pacific Dunes and, and that golf course. and And what you just mentioned brought to mind Pacific Dunes and what's so great about that golf course is there are so many intersecting avenues. You cross paths of different holes and the holes are twisted and there are these junctions where you see uh, not only people on the, on a nearby tee, but you can stand on tees and look around and see people on different holes all over the golf course, and it really b- gives you a sense of this site, and 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 it and it brings you into this this big uh, arena that you're playing in, and you have a sense of of proportion and connectivity, and it, it's something that is so special about that golf course is just the way the routing and the the way the foot traffic. Merges and intersects and then uh separates from the other players that are on the golf course
1: i'll never forget a magazine uh, qu- uh, quoted me years ago r- right after it was built they said what's the what what is so special about Pacific dunes and the routing and I said it was looping, it was looping, always looping, yeah, and what i meant what I meant by that to the magazine and that 's just you described was that you would go out to the ocean and then come back into the dunes and go out to the ocean and then come back and you did that over several times and the cool thing about that transition from ocean to dunes and ocean to dunes is that you had to cross paths somewhere you had to crisscross somewhere you had to loop across something and when you do that you maximize the the views you maximize the wind directions you maximize the look and play of, of the landform that's given to you, and that's a special, special routing that I don't think people give it uh, its its due.
0: Yeah, it's it's a, and this is this goes back to the the either the, the the desire you know to to praise a golf course that has isolated holes or to to be more exposed golf courses that that have. 360 degree views where it's just as interesting to look behind you and do you way off 90 degrees to your left 90 degrees to your right because there's something to see from every aspect that that you're on and you get that on links courses you get that at pacific dunes
1: you get that at pacific dunes and i've never told any of this to anybody and maybe i have but it's been a long time when i was constructing building pacific dunes with help from with from brian slanick and bruce they were helping me shape. I would always stand on a green and I would look back to the T and I made sure that I disguised the T so that the view would be through the T and beyond and not at the T itself. And I did that on every hole to make sure the landform was as pleasing looking towards the green as it was looking back. And that's something I was always will cherish about why pacific dunes is so pretty to look at because you're not looking at land, you're not looking at the geometric part of, of the golf course you're looking through it and past it because i spent time looking back as many times as i look forward
0: oh that's masterful that's a great point yeah. like when you're when you look back when you're in the fairway and you look back up to the third tee all you see is that ridge you know you don't that's see all. where you came from it's hard that's even that's to right. discern what point on the ridge that you were just on
1: And I did that by putting little mounds in front of the tees that are not very noticeable or the way Ken Nice and the crew planted it. Uh, My favorite view was from six green out back towards the tee over Mm. to 12, 11, back over to two. But every time I stood on the green, I looked all the way around to make sure I hid the tees so that you wouldn't see where you had come from. You just saw the landform.
0: Well, let's see if uh, if that applies to another course you were involved in. I got a question on Twitter that I wanted to, to present to you, Jim. It was a question to you, and this was from a couple of weeks ago from Andrew Beers. Uh, Andrew, if you're listening, thanks for the question, and sorry it took so long to to do <laughs> to get Jim on the podcast again to do this. But but here it goes. It says, "I I love the salon episodes with Jim Urbina. Thank you. I have a question for Jim if he would go be uh, so gracious as to answer. Apache Stronghold is a great design and fun to play." How was it working in the desert and what challenges were there compared to a clay site? Well, I
1: can tell you that the challenges of working at Apache Stronghold was the building of the golf course itself. The site was beautiful. The landforms were beautiful. The vegetation and landscape was beautiful. The open distant views were those were all all just waiting for a golf course to happen. The challenges were that we had to use an in-house construction crew. And there's nothing wrong with using in-house construction crews. I've done it for a long time. Sabonic Golf Club, Old McDonald, Pacific Dunes. But before I had done all of those golf courses, I had to use an in-house construction crew at Apache Stronghold. One of the reasons they hired us is that we said that we would use Apache Nation uh, people to to work and build and maintain the golf course. So we had to teach them what a golf course was. Uh, A lot of people don't know this, but one of the first things I did at Apache Stronghold was I took the construction crew, almost 80 of them, and we went into the casino, into the conference center, and I showed a photo and a film about what a golf course was. (laughs) <laughs> and, and there's 80 guys in there <laughs> saying, we're going to build that. And I said, yes, we're going to build that grass? It's a golf course.
0: <laughs> <laughs> What's grass? <laughs>
1: <laughs> and they were like, okay. And so that was one of the biggest challenges using an in-house crew. The second big, ch- biggest challenge was being able to get people around the golf course and, uh, because a lot of people in the desert, uh, in the heat, wanted to use golf carts. And so uh, trying to create a cart trail that would not impede on the look of Apache stronghold landforms was also very difficult. And last but not least, we were dealing with a, with a, a golf course that was at elevation, 3,800 feet. But yet it had all the characteristics of a... Valley Golf Course uh, hun- uh, at a thousand feet, Bermuda grasses, uh, uh, a landscape that would, would 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 require warm season grasses. So that was a, a lot of the things that we dealt with. Uh, but one of the things that, one of the things that we didn't have to worry about was the beauty, the beauty and the specialness of the Apache Nation and the people uh, at Apache uh, stronghold. Uh, some a place I'll, I'll cherish forever.
0: Now, is Apache Stronghold still open or has that shut down?
1: Well, I, I, I got a call this summer. Uh, they are trying to reopen it. I uh, got a call from the new superintendent who who is from the Apache Nation, and he was asking me if I could recommend uh, uh, an agronomist to help him get the grass revived back again. And so I'm hoping that they'll call me back to help them uh, reinvigorate the golf course. It's sitting there uh, right now. I haven't had anybody call me in a long time to tell me that they have played it, but I did get a call this summer, and I hope they're going to, uh, to get it revived, turn the water back on, and, and, and if you've never been there, uh, Derek, it's worth the 100-mile trip from uh, Phoenix uh, Sky Harbor Airport. It's worth the trip to be in the beauty and the special uh, landforms of the Apache nation.
0: Mm -hmm. What was the, what's the biggest obstacle to the success for that golf course? I know it's kind of seemed to struggle right from the beginning.
1: Uh, It's, it's, it's struggle is that it, it has to compete with golf courses uh, managed by Troon and managed by a lot of those, those uh, name recognition uh, management companies Mm -hmm. that, make their golf courses in the desert, just beautiful and welcoming. But Apache stronghold has this kind of rustic, good old fashioned golf course that, you know, it's a little rough on the edges. And when people drive up there, they're so used to coming out of the valley in Phoenix where everything's in perfect place that when they get to Apache stronghold, it's a little rough edged, but I can tell you the architecture, the greens that we built there. The, the lay of the land the the specialness of it uh, the strategy and and all the things that we put into it are as good as anything in the valley it's just rough around the edges and I think people want a little bit more for that hundred mile drive
0: yeah was, I think the hundred mile drive might be the the, the major issue if that, well if, and if
1: you yeah if you live in East Phoenix it's only forty five or fifty miles uh-huh. sixty miles but you know, from coming from the uh, Phoenix Airport, I drove it a lot. Believe me, I know. I know exactly how long it takes. But going up that canyon up to Globe, Arizona, and going up into the high desert, oh, I'm telling you, it's so beautiful. It's. I just wish that we could bring back some of the vitality of Apache Stronghold because once you're there, uh, you could go around and around and around. In fact, we had. I I was starting to lay out a second 18. But uh, we never got through the rough edges of the first 18, uh, so it sits there waiting to be reimagined.
0: Well, that's something for the future. Andrew, I hope that answers your question. And by the way, everyone, if, if you do have questions, Jim and I have a few more of these salons lined up uh, now that uh, we're heading into winter and things are calming down a little bit. So uh, don't hesitate to reach out with something for Jim. At, you can hit me on Twitter at Feed the Ball. You can email the question to me at uh, Derek underscore Duncan at discovery.com as well. So keep those questions coming and we'll do our best to answer them. Jim, and I
1: hope that answered his question.
0: I hope so too. I think it did it answered a question anyway <laughs> it'll probably come up again at some point as well jim let's le- let's let it go right there we'll let- bring this one to a close it was a long podcast but a, a wonderful talk with kyle phillips i was glad to have he came on and, and joined us and uh, i enjoyed that thoroughly
1: he's got good energy he's got a lot of passion he you does can see when we talk uh, i enjoyed it thank you derek thank you thank you
0: good night everyone